Good evening, good morning, good afternoon, whatever time it is you're listening to this, you have reached Riddles in the Dark, um, the broadcast to end all... Bro- no, that's like, how did I do this? <laughs> yeah, Can see, you guys tell this is not Dave Kale? Yeah, Dave so- has set such a high standard for bombast <laughs> at the beginning of terrible. our podcast episodes that it's really hard to overcome his example. Uh, it is, it yes. is. Yes. So this is Trish and Corey with yeah. Riddles in the Dark. Yeah, hey, And Dave's how's not it going? with us. He may join us later, but he had some other things he needed to take care of. So yes. we're here. Yes. So that's the intro. <laughs> okay, that'll do. That'll do. So today in Riddles in the Dark, we are we are of course approaching closer and closer to the actual release of film two. This is I feel indeed. Like I, should go dum, dum, dum. I know. This is this is indeed our <laughs> penultimate episode before the release of the film. We're going to do one more. Um, and in our last episode, we're going to go back through and re- and do our our review of all the riddles. Um, so we're going to go back and look at the one, talk about the ones which uh, seem to have been uh, been answered uh, in the trailers and things. Um, we're also going to have to review, because there were a number of riddles that we haven't talked about in a long time, which we had originally included in season one, especially from before the time when they split the uh, the the film into three. Right. Um, which uh, So there were some riddles from season one which didn't get definitively answered last year, uh, and so we were deferring them to this year. So we'll re- review those as well. Review so we're those. doing a and, big and riddle review. And Laura and I need to catch up on the digest. Right. So those will all be caught up by the time we do, hopefully caught up by the time we do the review. And I just want to let everybody know who's listening. You know, as those of you that have been following along know that Facebook took away the poll feature on, yes. on Facebook. And so I've been like struggling trying to figure out how to do this. I finally figured out what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a survey monkey online survey. Once we're all done with everything, yeah. I'll do an online survey, uh, survey monkey. And that'll include then also the riddles that Corey just talked about you know, okay, the ones right. we did from last year. And then we'll just make sure that we promote that out. So you know where to go and you can get all that done. We'll close it down just before the movie, you know, movie premieres, but then you can get all your answers in. So right. you can see how, right. if you can beat Corey on this game or not. Yeah. <laughs> Though the people who are only doing it just now have a little bit of an advantage because much more is known now than was known nine months ago. But that's okay. Well, it's kind of like why I kind of want to reset it. And I think folks that have been answering all the way along can go ahead and answer differently if they want to now. Because you're right. I mean, the newer folks have an edge and we can just take that edge away. Yeah, yeah. Of course, we are still operating under this handicap, this is but true. it's okay. You and I, yes, you and I, Dave, yes, it's okay. True, but that's all right. We'll, I, will, we'll I, will, I, I will, I will expect to, uh, I will expect to uh, bring up the rear again this year. But anyway, <laughs> um, so okay, so that's what we're doing. Uh, sort of the, you know, the plan over the next two sessions today. We're going to be looking, you know, as we've been talking about, we're going to be discussing the additions to the extended edition of uh, an unexpected journey. Um, which I think contains some really fascinating stuff. Um, so we're um, we're going to talk about that. Though first, we have several other items um, that have uh, that are more directly related to the Desolation of Smaug that have been released here, um, released or leaked or whatever in the last uh, in the last couple of weeks. So we wanted to talk about a couple of these. Um, uh, a, a couple of these sort of smaller things first, and then we'll get to the extended edition uh, as we get closer to the end. And no, we're not going to talk about the entire extended edition. I know what most of you are thinking and what some of you have already been saying uh, on Twitter and <laughs> Facebook all day. Oh my goodness, if they took three and a half hours to talk about a two-minute trailer, uh, how long are they going to take to talk about the entire extended edition? I know, I, I totally recognize that, the apparent absurdity of this idea. Uh, however, again, we're not going to be doing 
doing a frame-by-frame analysis of the extended edition. Of course, edition. you know, the number of minutes that we are going to talk about is around three minutes, so we could end up doing a two-hour extended edition. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, hey, Dave, yeah. David Trimboli, by the way, about the answers, I, I don't know that he meant it this way, but I'm taking it this way. We we could have a handicap, you know, for yeah. the points. You know, like, we could, we could figure out some kind of handicap that we get a handicap because we're, you know, our answers were before all the information yeah. came out. So. Yeah, some kind of proration like that, David. That yeah, sounds. Yeah, that's yeah. that sounds. That a great uh, idea? That's a. That's a great idea. Anything that ends up giving me more points sounds like a great idea that's to right. me. Me too. That's me very too. good. Because I actually, I think, am one of the few people that got less than Corey. It's last true. Year, so. It's true. Yeah, I've uh, I've been able to sleep better all the year knowing that I at least beat Trish. I might not have beaten many other people, but by golly, I did beat Trish. You did barely. beat Trish, and yeah. Dave beat you only by like one or one half point or something. So. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Brianna. Brianna's one of our judges. She says, judging is beginning to sound more complicated. <laughs> Don't worry. It'll be a simple mathematical calculation. We can do it after the fact. No problem. Right. That's right. Your big challenge will be deciding what the right answer is. Exactly are. right. Yeah, exactly. With no interference from the co-host. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to lock Dave away during that process That's this right. year. That's right. But okay. So the first thing that we wanted to talk about was that there were a couple video um, – clips that were released one was a video uh featurette clip from one of not a clip of the desolation of smaug itself but a clip of one of the bonus features that will undoubtedly be on the the desolation of smaug dvd i'm sure eventually when it comes out um and this uh featurette was broadcast on uh under the uh exclusive and auspicious um, uh, 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 <laughs> sort of cultural influence of Denny's. Appropriate uh, brand yeah, right, for the movie exactly. <laughs> And for those of you who have forgotten and who are looking, who might look at this and say, why on earth is Denny's restaurant releasing a, an exclusive, you know, uh, Hobbit movie featurette? Um, if you're thinking that, it's probably because you have managed successfully to block out of your consciousness any memory of that Hobbit-themed menu that Denny's came out with last year. Um, I know that I, too, had managed successfully to forget about that until I saw this feature ad, and then yeah, it all came too. came rushing back to me. Back. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, I... Yeah. The th- See, the thing is... It's not that I object to the idea of having a Hobbit-themed menu, goodness knows. I mean, after all, I have recently completed writing the foreword to a cookbook on that exact theme. But it's, it's uh, nor, nor am I simply being snobbish in looking down my nose at uh, the August institution that is the Denny's restaurant chain, um, uh, that they should be the ones who do it. It's their execution that really bothered me, um, you know, where they seemed it was, um, it was, uh, I, I was, I was, I was unimpressed at uh, their efforts at Middle Earth food. Um but um, though Daniel, you know, Daniel is saying that he 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 enjoyed the food and didn't care. That's fine, Daniel. That's fine. Uh, I, I, you know, um, that's OK. Um, I, I, I will admit that I never did actually eat any of it. I never got to a Denny's last year uh, while they were running these things. Um, but um, 
Plus, look at it this way. There are other franchises, and I will not name any names that it could have been. You know, it could have been worse. It could have been some other franchise. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, like I said, it's not that I, it's not that I object to Denny's per se. It's just, like, as I was, I was, I was, I was underwhelmed by uh, right. their efforts um, at, uh, at, I mean, they just, they missed such, so many, such obvious things, you know, from, from the books. But whatever, it's fine. I, uh, you know, anyhow. So Denny's had this featurette, and uh, we'll give you uh, Trish. Do you have the the address to that? Could you put that in the chat, maybe, so people um, can? Yeah, I will track it can, down while, can while access you talk it. Those about who it. haven't seen it. So basically, the featurette was about Bjorn's house, and uh, they confirmed. Of course, you know, as we knew, as we certainly had known from the second trailer. You may remember in that first trailer it was the first time we got that image of the enormous bear head trying to make its way through the doors and, and Bilbo and the dwarves and Gandalf, you know, trying to bar it, it out. And, and we were concluding from that first glimpse in that first trailer that it, it rather looked puzzling, though it seemed to us at the time that uh, they were trying to bar uh, Bjorn, bar the door of Bjorn's own house against him. Um and we couldn't sort of quite figure that out. Um, it, this seemed much more clear when we saw in the second trailer not only the bear bursting out of the bushes and charging across the field towards them, but also them running through into that sort of uh, walled garth area around what was obviously Bjorn's house. Um, so it seemed pretty clear that our initial analysis of that was correct. Um, and this this was all confirmed. You know, they told that much of the story anyway. What they didn't tell is still the question, which um, r- remains, um, in my mind anyway, which is, how do they get from one end to the other? Um, that is to say, how do they, you know, the, the question that we were asking even back in that very first trailer analysis, how do you go from we are trying to keep this maddened, slathering bear out of the house and from killing us, how do you get from there to, you know, him inviting you to dinner and helping you on your journey, as presumably Bjorn will indeed, go, you know, go on to do. Um, and the featurette did not answer that question at all, though it does did confirm that this does in fact happen. Because, of course, one possibility when we, you know, seeing them in their initial interactions with Bjorn, one possibility is that it never becomes as quiet and amicable as it becomes in the book. Um, you know, that they just play up the, uh, you know, the dangerousness of Bjorn, which is, of course, a very important element uh, in the story. Um, and he never becomes the sort of, uh, you know, cheerful friend and ally that he becomes uh, in the book. That seems not to be the case. It seems that they are, in fact, going to get from I am chasing you down and attempting to kill you in the form of a bear uh, to, um, you know, I am hosting you around my table at dinner. Um, Again, no indications in this as to how... um, there's 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 no indication here as to how they're going to get from one point to another. Um, so I'm thinking Radagast, or at least by name, may figure into the transition from foe to friend. You know, that strikes me as incredibly likely, not only just sort of on a logical basis, but again... As you remember, that happens in the book, right? That's where right. the name of Rad- that's the one time the name of Radagast is mentioned in The Hobbit, is when Gandalf does that name-dropping thing and mentions Radagast, um, who lives nearby. Um, so 
that strikes me as a very likely thing because it's exactly the kind of little passing reference that happens in the book that's likely mm-hmm. that's that's very likely for them to kind of pounce on and build on um since they've obviously you know with the with the developing of 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 Radagast into a central character in the story that they're telling um and since Radagast is going to show up again pretty soon, I mean, it, it, it just it, it, right. that, that certainly seems very likely. Though again, I mean, what 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 are they going to like shout through the door that they're friends <laughs> of Radagast and he's just going to turn from a bear back into a big? Oh, oh, well, in that case, come to dinner. I mean, I, I still, I mean, it's one of the things you know in, in the Bjorn sequence. It's it's certainly one of the things that I am most curious about to see how that's going to be managed. Um, but. Yeah, I don't know. Um, one other thing that that came across in the, um, you know, that they spent a lot of time emphasizing in this featurette is that Bjorn is very large. I mean, he's big in the books, um, but well, books. There's only one book actually in this case. Uh, I've been sorry. I've been teaching the Lord of the Rings for weeks now, so I'm 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 still thinking in that mode. Um, uh, in the book, Bjorn is is quite large. It looks like. From all I can see, they're making him even proportionally larger. Um, uh, in... Yeah, just check it just by the furniture scenes. Yeah, yes, I mean, golly. yeah. They have all of this outsized scale, you know, to scale furniture and bowls and everything that, uh, um, you know, so that the dwarves and, and and even Gandalf can all look quite small um, while sitting in it. Uh, and of course, I mean, the dwarves and 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 Bilbo are supposed to be smaller scale anyway, um, but it's clear that he is very large giant is the word that they use to de, um to describe him um uh david is asking uh, uh if the chess pieces that we see there in in uh in bjorn's house uh in the featurette uh are in fact hedgehogs david i think there might be some hedgehogs uh in those i think it's like a mix of animals didn't yeah it? yeah there was yeah. there was a mix of animals and i think there may indeed be a hedgehog involved in there though i didn't scrutinize it too closely merchandising merchandising exactly well, it's the whole oh wait the chess set absolutely yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. um yeah. So and and of course you know there's a lot of emphasis in the feature out of just about how 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 gorgeous that set was and it does look really nice. Um but uh so anyway so the size of Bjorn, you know the 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 size of Bjorn as a as a human uh was interesting. And they um, still didn't show Bjorn as a character. They didn't show him on this feature at all. No. They showed the actor. Yeah. They yeah. had an interview with the actor, but they didn't show Bjorn. Yeah. Exactly. So the only thing we have to go by so far is the few pictures we've seen and the Lego figure. Yep. <laughs> Yep. Yeah. The only other, the only actual clips from the film itself that they showed were the trailer shots. Um, you know, they showed right. sort of backstage shots of the, you know, the dwarves in costume um, on the set, but they didn't. Uh, right. um, they didn't actually show any more uh, movie bits. Um, so that was interesting. I mean, the Bjorn thing. I, I am. You know, I, I feel like I've got a clearer idea, mostly a clearer idea of the Bjorn trajectory, certainly in this film. Um, there are two things that I don't really know. I mean, thanks to the Lego sets, um, you know, we know, and I, and it seems to me very likely that, you know, Bjorn is going to go to Dol Guldur and get ambushed there. Um, right. And if we, can trust, if we can trust the title of that set. <laughs> yeah. And it's the titles that I'm still most leery of, you know, um, but but um if uh but still not you know try to get past the title for now knowing that he's going to go and fight orcs this again it seems to me um 
just not only, you know, knowing the story, but also knowing, you know, seeing some of the tendencies of the adaptation that we've seen already, um, both in the Hobbit film and, and, and in the Lord of the Rings films. Um, you know, we have that element in that element is there in the story. Um, that element of, um, of Bjorn going off on a solo adventure and, and fighting goblins and wargs and, you know, interrogating them and finding out, you know, discovering the truth of what has happened and coming back. So, you know, the, the idea that they would take that element and they would use that as the foundation of this larger story where he's not going back into the Misty Mountains to confirm, uh, Thorin and Gandalf's story, but rather he's going off, um, to, presumably confirm what Gandalf is telling him. Um, and if you remember um, last year before, when they were still um, promoting, you know, the two movies. And so they had an interview, there was an interview with the actor and he talks about the, you know, the scene where he's torturing an orc, yes. which is probably based on the book, but yes. probably a heck of a lot more graphic. I have to think so. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so, we know this is going to happen, but of course, again, now given the context of, you know, the Mirkwood context that we've been given in the first film, the way in which they're incorporating the corruption of green of Greenwood into Mirkwood by the rise of the necromancer here. Um, it of course would make sense that B- Bjorn has to be aware of this, you know, uh, you know, obviously he's going to be very in touch, uh, with what's going on there in the forest. And, um, so the idea that he would want to, um, presumably he will learn from Gandalf that um, the center of the evil in the forest is at Dol Guldur, and so Bjorn will take it on himself to go and check it out. And that's how that's going to happen. So that, so you know, instead of going, uh, you know, instead of going west to the mountains uh, to find a, a worgen and orc, he'll end up going east um, right. uh, to find them. That all makes sort of perfect sense. My the big the two biggest questions for me that are left in understanding how what Bjorn's character is going to be doing um, in the next two films is again, first that one question, how do you get from I am coming to destroy you to I am inviting you for dinner? How how is that going to be managed on screen? And then secondly, what happens after Dol Guldur? Okay. So he goes and so he learns Dol Guldur is the center and he goes and presumably finds this confirmed when he meets orcs and, uh, and, um, and, and, presumably tortures one to get information not about what Thorin and Gandalf did in Mirkwood, but about what is going on at Dol Guldur. Um, then what? Is he going to be connected with Gandalf again later on? Is he going to help with the attack on Dol Is he going to be at you know what we have been calling the Battle of Dol Guldur, which is apparently going to be happening in film three? Um or is he going to, you know, basically, how do we get from him going to Dol Guldur and then him ending up at the Battle of Five Armies? Um, right. Is he just going to stick with Gandalf? Is he is he going to be is he going to be in a sense, you know, Gandalf's, you know, sort of semi independent, you know, Ursine sidekick, um, you know, in in this maybe next. He'll be, maybe he'll be Gandalf's ride. <laughs> <laughs> That's how Gandalf will get to the Lonely Mountain so fast. Right. And we're asking, like, how is Gandalf going to make the commute, you know, between Del Guldur and, and the Lonely Mountain in time on for the bear Battle of Fire? On bear, he's going to ride bareback. Exactly. That's how. And he's we know Diane's going to be riding a pig, a boar, into battle. So, so that'll be interesting. There we go. It's just it fits the theme. Um. <laughs> 
yeah so so there we have it um um but uh yeah uh, daniel you're right um daniel bears uh pointing out that we do see a shot that includes bjorn's animals um in his house there um yes that's true um and they did not look very narnian um you know that we didn't <laughs> we didn't see them walking on their back legs you know they're not wearing clothes they just they looked like regular quadrupedal animals um uh so you know i i will be give me because remember that's one of the questions the animals act um you know to actually faithfully depict what tolkien describes of the animals um especially the dogs um in uh in the book you would have to um you know computer generate the animals you know as thoroughly as the animals in you know the chronicles of narnia films were 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 computer generated um you know because you've got the dogs walking on their hind legs and carrying bowls of soup and that kind of thing as they're serving at table um Anyway. I'm I'm hoping we're going to see that. Well, we may not, but I'm hoping we do. I think it'd be cool. Yeah, he does it well. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, David, you're right. I only saw uh, cows too, um, but but I was but but yeah, but I'm yeah I, I'm I'm assuming that means that there will be others also. Um, but, but I will bore I will bore I will bore Corey yet one more time because I think I've told you this like four times. Um, in the uh, in one of the documentaries in the extended edition, there's an itty bitty scene where Gandalf is astride a horse, and he's telling the company to stick to the path, which right. which to, for me places it at Bjorn's, which yep. is probably he's gotten a horse on loan, yep. and he's telling he's about to take off and leave the company. So there's at least one horse around. Yes, yeah, so there does not seem to be any evidence of ponies that the dwarves no. and Bilbo are riding. So, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Anyway, okay. Right. So, this whole movie, this whole movie, they're going to be ponyless. Oh, well, they were pon- They had ponies in an unexpected journey, but... Yeah, yeah. Uh, they had ponies briefly, um, uh, long enough to get captured by the, by the trolls. Um, but, uh... Come to think of it, what on earth happened to those ponies? You know, I was just thinking the same thing. We don't see them after the Because they trolls, rescue the ponies from the trolls, and then right. they're still on foot after that. Like Right, because then they run all, you know, they zigzag all over the yeah. mountain. You know, that, that makes the chase scene with Radagast and his bunny sled even more ludicrous. That they should have horses. What happened to the horses? I know. I you know, I never thought of that in my just... life until just now. <laughs> me neither. It just occurred to me, too. <laughs> Because I was thinking before you said that, I was thinking, where did they lose the points? Oh, that's right. Kieran is reminding us. Ori says they bolted when the wargs attack. Oh, okay. That's right. That's right. Okay. Gosh. Yeah. Thanks, Kieran. Kieran, you're Thanks right. For I, 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 I'd forgot because it it's tossed off in like one line and then they're okay. Yeah. Yeah. And Mike was recalling that too. Okay, good. Thank you for a minute. I was going to say, that seems like way too huge of a gap to, I mean, you know, Peter Jackson's generally been better than leaving holes that size. Yeah, um, really. Yeah, yeah. But that anyway. A, that's a pretty convenient way to get rid of the ponies. It is. It is. Um, but anyway, okay, so let's move on to our second, uh, our second uh, smaller element, which is the uh, snippet. This is actually, amusingly, uh, the very scene that precipitated the big fight we had last last episode. Um, that is the scene. Like you just got all feisty. <laughs> exactly. 
<laughs> the the ep- the scene where uh, the orc has been captured and is uh, being held there in front of Thranduil and uh, and Toriel is uh, trying to kill it uh, and all of that stuff. Um, but um, I we we so that that scene was shown. It was released uh, as an exclusive on MTV, uh, and there's a there's a, a, a capture of it, uh, a video. Yeah, I of put it. it up on a, I've put it up on the chat. Okay, so good. Yeah, so people can see that, uh, and it's it's quite brief, but the clearly substantial thing there is you know you've got the elves interrogating the orc, which they have captured because it has been it is hunting for uh Thorin and company. And it I I I feel quite safe in saying this is obviously one of Azog's orcs. Um because of course we see Azog as the one leading the orcs in the attack on the elf the the little elf uh we've seen him jump up wall. on that parapet probably exactly. about a hundred times now. <laughs> exactly. Um Right. So um so clearly uh he he seems to be one of Azog's people. Um and they're trying to figure out why he's why he cares about um, Thorin so much, and you know this is actually a good question, or rather, the fact that it's a question is very interesting because we're led to believe in the first film that it's merely personal vengeance, right? That this is just Azog, um, right. you know, saying you cut off my hand, I'm coming after you. Um, uh, though there were hints already that it was a little bit bigger than that. You know, that he, you know, in, in, in the beginning when Balin is doing the voiceover at the beginning of the introduction to the Battle of Azanulbazar, um, we're told that Azog had, like, sworn that he was going to stamp out the line of Durin. Right. Um, why that is true doesn't really ever get explained. Um, but again, it's 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 hinted then that he already has some plan or motivation, which is more than just personal, though, of course, his personal vendetta against Thorin um, for taking his hand um, uh, obviously, you know, um, clearly adds some spice to the thing um, when he comes back in film one. Um, But there's the indication that it, there's the indication, again, the very clear indication that there's something more to it. Again, Thranduil's question is, why, why is this dwarf so important? And the answer that the orc gives is not because he chopped off my master's hand and we're going to take him, you know, like it's, it's, you know, vengeance. It's that, that has nothing to do with it. Um, he says that his master, presumably Azog, uh, now serves and it's now serves, right? Trish, am I recalling that correctly? I think it is. Yeah, I'm looking at the transcript, and it doesn't say now serves, but he says my, my the transcript says my master serves the one. Serves the one. And I don't remember. Yeah, I don't remember if he says now serves. The one, that anyway. that was that was my memory, but he I, says I my master be... now serves the one. Yeah, but, just that he that it's that there is a sense there of uh, of that he's, uh, that he's that he didn't used to, and now he's come into alliance or whatever. Right. Well, it's, that things have changed. That right. things have changed because you know the one. It's like uh, see, I'm 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 thinking of Narnia now. It's like Aslan is on the move, except evil. Right, right. You know, right. Like it, as an old bazaar, there wasn't this. Right, this exactly. But now there is. That yeah. that Azog was once a free agent, um, right. but now is not a, a free agent anymore. Is now is now you know that now uh, you know these orcs and creatures are now rallying uh, behind. Uh, Sauron as he is rising again. Um, the one 
is the phrase that's used. That that's by itself an interesting phrase. It's um, an interesting use of yeah. Because of course, there's there's never any use. There's you know, Sauron is never called that um, in Tolkien's works. <laughs> Though of course, you know, I mean, the Ring is called that quite a lot. So that's a, an interesting kind of connection mm-hmm. there. I, I don't think we have any reason to believe that that's what the orc is thinking of. That the orc is thinking about the One Ring or his search for the One Ring or anything like that. Um, it's just it's interesting that. Um, the goblin calls him the one, um, which is a phrase that we already have associations with in reference to the one ring. And obviously that connection is, um, is, is a sort of intriguing one. Um, but, um, but the, the reaction Thranduil is obviously It's upset. all nonverbal. Yeah. <laughs> He looks very like, oh my god. Yeah, he's a very, very strong nonverbal uh, reaction to this, and uh, decapitates the orc. Um, but um, without even looking around. Yeah, without even like, turning around. You know, but I gotta say, I don't understand. This is actually goes for everybody, and I think don't we? I think we've talked about this even with regard to Tolkien's own writings. Why is everybody being so obtuse? Why are they in denial? You know, it's like nobody wants to believe it's Sauron. Right. Well, a couple things. First of all, um, nobody really knew whether he was... The fact that he was not completely destroyed um, was not obvious. Um, I mean, Saruman, we'll get to it when we talk about the Ascended Edition. I mean, Saruman talks that that he, he knows Sauron's still around, but that he's not... You know, he can't do anything. Right, exactly. Which is true at the end of The Lord of the Rings. I mean, he's... Right, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly. Um, yeah, he's not completely destroyed even then. Um, right. But anyhow, yeah, so... It does seem frightfully obtuse. But even comments that are made... You know, like you think of the, the comments that Elrond says. You know, when Elrond is talking about how the One was not destroyed after the Battle of Daggerlad. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And he says, you know... Uh, Isildur kept the ring as should not have been. Um, but I think what is constructed from that, the way, you know, thinking back to the way that Jackson did that in the Peter ja- in, in the film, uh, in the Fellowship of the Ring film, um, right. that scene at the cracks of doom with Isildur and Elrond, and Elrond saying, cast it in, quick, cast it into the fire! Uh, um, and Isildur turning aside from his much more stately, this I shall keep as Weregild for my father and my brother, and just saying, no. You know, that's, <laughs> that's right. which I always found disappointed. No. Like, can't, we, we, we can't get the Weregild line? Come on, that was so I cool. Know. But anyway, um, I, that's, so basically it, it seems clear that, you know, that Jackson and team have taken that, um, that that scene, that that scene with Elrond and, and and Isildur from Elrond, that comment that Elrond makes in the Council of Elrond about how the ring should have been destroyed after the Battle of Daggerlad, or rather about how it was a good, it was a bad idea for Isildur to have kept it, that it should never have been. Right. But I don't think that the the way that Jackson has adapted that is an inescapable way of understanding what Elrond is saying. Remember Elrond, by the time he says that in the council of Elrond, Elrond has a whole huge pile of hindsight going on. 
You know, I mean, they now know that Sauron has risen again. They now know that had they destroyed the ring, this wouldn't have happened. And so, yeah, looking back on it, he's he's going to say, yeah, you know, uh, that was really bad the way that that turned out. But I do not think that that means that at the time they were all saying, oh, man, yeah, you know, uh, uh, obviously the thing to do now is uh, is throw it in. Now, again, I'm not necessarily saying, oh, Peter Jackson screwed it up. What they did with that scene in the film was very interesting because, of course, in the Fellowship of the Ring film in particular, that scene with Elrond and Isildur at the Cracks of Doom sets up the scene with Frodo and Aragorn at the end where Aragorn, you know, resists the ring uh, and and differentiates himself from Isildur, um, you know, with the parallel that they build through that, you know, through the scene in, 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 in Rivendell and all this. I mean, it, it, it works very well in the story as they tell it in the film. However, I don't think that we actually, you know, for, in reading Tolkien's work, I don't think that we are compelled to imagine that some scene like that happened. Um, uh, they Sauron had been defeated. He'd been overcome. Right. Um, so I don't think they knew that he was going to come back. Um, basically, what we see in things like, uh, you know, the Unfinished Tales uh, accounts that we get of these conversations, um, it's in Unfinished Tales that we get the most detailed descriptions of what happened at the meetings of the White Council. Um, earlier on in the Sauron discovery phase uh, of the third age. And, um, you know, these, these parts of the time of the, of the third age that have been compressed and moved forward into the time frame of the Hobbit film. And, um, but again, you know, in those unfinished tales thing that w- what we get is them trying to guess, okay, there's some force for evil in Mirkwood. That's obvious. What could it be? And there are multiple options. Mm-hmm. One of the leading theories is that it's one of the ring race that right. one of the nine That's escaped. Right. Um, we, and, 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 and keep in mind, this is perfectly plausible earlier during the third age. We had Angmar appear, right? You know, that we had the, the whole, you know, the evil kingdom of Angmar under the witch King um, grew up and, 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 you know, brought about, ultimately the destruction of the North kingdom um, of Arnor and, and, and at the heart of that big movement of evil was one of the ring raids. So it's perfectly plausible, perfectly plausible that what's going on in Mirkwood could be another one of the ring raids or yeah, something I'm else. I'm kind of surprised. I'm kind of surprised that Jackson didn't go that route. Um, now that you're, now that you're reminding me of all this, I'm kind of surprised that in the movies, they don't kind of assume that, you know what I mean? More overtly. It could be one of the nine. It could be, you know, the witch. Because she mentions the witch king, right, in in Expected Journey. But they don't really go there, do they? I mean, they don't. Not exactly. Go to the no. Gospel. No one even suggests it. I mean, basically, yeah. because they, you know, you've got the four of them. Uh, you know, oh, because they think they're entombed. They think they're entombed. Right. They? Right. Exactly. Yeah. And and they've got, you know, that. So they think when they find the, you know, the the Morgul blade, as they call it, um, they. Uh, they, 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 you know, Elrond is saying, "Oh, but that's impossible." You know, they were shut away, right. Um, right. and uh, basically they divide it, the council between Galadriel and Gandalf on the one side. You know, Galadriel, who doesn't speak up very directly in, you know, for most of that conversation, um, but who is clearly on Gandalf's side, saying, 
this is something really serious and we really need to think about this. There's some, you know, there's something serious moving and, you know, we see, you know, orcs and trolls on the move and, and all of this. And then you've got Saruman on the other side saying, no, everything's fine. There's nothing to see here. And Elrond is pretty much agreeing with him. Yeah. Um, right. So, you know, this is one of the things, um, I mean, one of the things that happens as a result of compressing the time frame in the way that they have. I mean, when the when the White Council was discussing this, even with Saruman being deliberately duplicitous um, in the books we, during those White Council meetings, um, you know, with the chronology working out as it is, nobody, you know, not Saruman or anybody is going to try to deny that there's a force of evil in Mirkwood. Um, you know, the force of evil in Mirkwood is a well-documented fact by the time the White Council is talking about this stuff. Right. Um, whereas, again, in the, with the time compression of the films, all that's happening, all, all that has happened to this point have been the, you know, the first early flashes of this that Radagast has caught. Some animals are starting to die. These weird uh, and, uh, and, uh, and dangerous, you know, and sort of sickening mushrooms are growing up. These spiders have come, came and attacked my house. Um, you know, these are the signs that that uh, that Radagast is seeing, but most nobody else has seen or has taken seriously yet. So Saruman is still in a position in the film world is still in a position to say, "Oh, there's no, there's no big deal. There's nothing going right. on." Well, in the books, Mirkwood was already Mirkwood by this time. Right. Everybody right. could see there was something dark in Mirkwood. The only question was what it was. So that's, I think, why we get that difference in nobody saying, "Given that there's an evil, could it be one of the Nazgul?" Yeah. Um, well, and also, you know, Thranduil's look like in this in this clip. I mean, I suppose in that regard too. He knows he's fighting some kind of evil, but it all. But I could actually now understand that it would not have occurred to him until this orc says what he says. Yes, that it could be Sauron, and yeah. that's like his look on his face is like, uh, oh gosh, this is worse than I thought. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, even and this is an, another thing that's so easy to forget is the amount of time that has passed again thinking of the book world in particular i mean i know time passes like nothing in the films but in the <laughs> in in the book world people forget even when, even at the beginning even when mirkwood is just starting to darken it's been more than 2000 years since the downfall of sauron That's right. and he's not been heard of i mean it's been it's been you know like since socrates you know from the time of ancient Athens to now is the amount of time it's been, um, and you know, and of course, by the time by the time we get to by by the time we get to the end to the War of the Ring, you know, the Battle of Daggerlad is as far back as like Mesopotamia and the Fertile Crescent right. from us. Um, I right. mean, uh, you know, ancient Egypt, Ramses the Great. I mean, it's it's uh, really really distant stuff. Um, an enormous amount of time has passed. So even if you're immortal. It's not that they've forgotten. Of course, obviously, Elrond hasn't forgotten the Battle of Daggerlad, but um, but they've been they've been watching for millennia and no Sauron. So why should they suspect that you know twenty five hundred years later, after Sauron's downfall, some dark evil creature is growing up? Gosh, maybe it's that guy that we thought we offed twenty five hundred years ago. I mean, that's that's not now, the first thing they think. Before- do I, am I remembering right that we talked about this before, that actually in Tolkien's timeline, by the time The Hobbit comes, they actually do know that it's Sauron? Yes, yes, they do. They do, and they've, they've known that for quite some time. Right, um, right. Uh, by the time of the actual 
Hobbit plot. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's the, the whole, the White Council stuff, the discussions about the necromancer, the, the corruption of Greenwood, of the Greenwood into Mirkwood, the White Council discussions, all of those things are based on what Tolkien says, and there mm-hmm. are elements from those conversations take even lines taken close, not word for word, um, but but close from those things. But it's, it's just, it's like in extreme fast forward. Um, right. And it's it's been moved later, and it's been compressed very heavily, um, so as to foreground the drama. Because um, we'll remember, you know, Gandalf has just been to the dungeons of the Necromancer um, when he found Thran, and we're told that right. that time when he went and found Thran was when he uh, confirmed that confirmed. that it was in right. fact Sauron. Um, so you know, we know that not only has Mirkwood grown, you know, become evil. But they have confirmed that it's sound, and and that was a while. Remember, that was a hundred years ago last Thursday. Right. That's um, right. You know, That's at the right. beginning of the Hobbit, and he's been carrying the, the map. He's and been the carrying the map that. and the key around for ninety-two years or whatever it was. Um, so, yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, but but yeah. So so um, so no, it it, it is much more. Um, it is much more obvious uh in retrospect you know looking at all of these things they didn't know the ring that you know the survival of the ring meant that sauron would regain power they had no idea that it was him they did know that the ring wraiths were still around because they've already had a war with the witch king in the meantime not to mention the fact that the you know somebody has come and taken over minasithil um you know so they know about the Ringwraiths and that the Ringwraiths are still around, but that doesn't necessarily mean that Sauron is still operative. This just could, because, because actually, remember, this is the pattern, right? What happened when they took out Morgoth at the end of the first stage? Oh, well, no. his number one lieutenant came back and became the big bad guy, right? And then right. they take out Sauron, and what happens in the third age? His chief lieutenant, the Witch King, comes back and again. and becomes the big bad guy apparently, and sets up the kingdom in Angmar, right? So, right. you know, they, they there's there's it's 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 following the pattern that you would kind of expect to say, right. oh wow, it's Sauron return. Anyway, um, so I always think well, they say who who was the witch king's lieutenant? It must be him. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Um, yeah, but anyway, so so okay, but but we get clear reference to the fact to to several things. First of all, that that. That it is well, they don't name Sauron. They say the one, so presumably, we presumably weaving them in some, perhaps in some kind of doubt or question. Are they going to know exactly what that means? Are we to understand from Thranduil's nonverbal response that he actually knows that that means Sauron? Actually, maybe, uh, maybe he just fears it. I don't know, um, but. Um, I love the fact, you know, if you look at the clip, and we, can, we put the the uh, link up to the clip, um, if I was seeing it correctly, it was right when they cut it off at the end. It looks like they cut off Legolas in mid-eye roll as he's left holding the <laughs> dangling head of the orc. It looks like he's just Dad. about to, he's just about to roll his eyes, exactly, about to roll his eyes and be like, Dad? Poor you interrogation know, technique, Dad. <laughs> like, yeah, what'd you do that for? <laughs> The other line, and I and I understand why he's saying this, but I just thought it was really interesting that, that Legolas says, "You had uh, wait a minute, where am I at here? There is no king under the mountain, nor will there ever be." And I know he's saying that I think because they assume that as long as the dragon's there, yes, that's it. That's it on the lonely mountain. 
but I just thought that was an interesting, uh, you know, that they had him say that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that is interesting too. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah. And you know, one thing, this is sort of tangential, but it's reminding me of it. Um, even though with the will, with the will Turner, excuse me, I mean the bard stuff <laughs> in Lake town and, um, you know, uh, they didn't show anything from that that they hadn't shown in the trailers. So there was no new footage on that at all. Um, but uh, they, in watching some of these clips, for some reason, I, I, I sort of saw that a little bit more clearly. Um, the confrontation between Bard and Thorin, when Bard is saying, you have no right to enter the mountain, and, and, and Thorin is saying, I have the only right. Um, clearly, what... Bard is talking about there are these prophecies, you know, that basically by saying, because when that for, when that trailer came out, with the first time we heard Bard saying, you have no right to enter the mountain, I was thinking like, well, that's kind of a strange thing to say, isn't it? I mean, surely you could say entering the mountain would be a really bad idea, but to say you have no right to enter the mountain to Thorin, who's the heir of the king, like, of course he has a right to enter the mountain. Right. But, um, <laughs> What Bard seems to, and it kind of kind of came a little bit clearer to me what Bard is obviously meaning when he says that. I'm sure everyone else already saw this, and I'm just slow. But, uh, but it goes back to those prophecies or songs. You know, the the the, the prophetic songs that Bard was digging up in that second or third trail or whichever it was, and um, you know that basically to enter the mountain is to, as far as Bard understands and can see. Um, to enter the mountain is to bring the destruction of Lake Town upon. Like it is, it is the prophecy that if the king under the mountain returns to the mountain, then Lake Town will be destroyed in fire. Um, so you have no right, not in the sense of you know his inherited right, but he has no moral right to enter the mountain because in doing so, it's not just that he's doing something risky or possibly suicidal or something like that, but that he's doing something act- actually destructive. That he is knowingly, you know, he has been told that if he does this, it will bring destruction on Lake Town, and he's going to do that anyway. And he's going to, you know, he, he he's still going to insist on doing that. Um, and that. First of all, I just find fascinating the way in which they've kept the element of the prophetic songs and have 180 degrees reversed the prophecies. Um, you know, by by you know, we talked about this a little bit in the quotation from the verse that uh, that Bard reads um, during one of the trailers. Um, uh, but. You know, it's, so that instead of saying everything's going to be happy when the mountain king's return, the mountain king returns, to say everything's going to be sad when the mountain uh, king returns. But, um, but just they how they've totally altered the prophetic force of it, um, so that it now simply becomes a prophecy of doom. And I find that I find that really fascinating. Um, and it would yeah. be interesting to see where that because, of course, what I see in that is is pretty clearly the setup for. The Lonely Mountain, uh, you know, for the for the siege of the Lonely Mountain in film three, right. um, you know, it's not even just from what we've seen in the trailers. It is not hard to imagine uh, Bard and Thranduil getting together and confronting Thorin across a battlefield um, and coming and laying siege to him um, and making accusations against him. That seems pretty. But, you know, I, I 
one of the things that I did think about this scene where Thranduil is goes all wide-eyed and, you know, obviously concerned about the fact that this is Sauron, one of my, my thoughts was, okay, so then why the heck do you then lay siege to the Lonely Mountain? You know what I mean? It's like, if you're worried about the fact that this is Sauron and Mirkwood, what then is your motivation to go, to turn your back on Sauron and march over to Lonely Mountain and, and, and you know, go to make war on the dwarves? I suppose this will be explained in the movie, but I just was, you know, does that, does that make sense to you? I mean, you may yeah. not agree with me, but at It's least... all about the swag. It's all about the swag. Yeah, yeah, right. That's true. That's um, true. And, well, and then if I have all the riches, then I can make war on Sauron. <laughs> make better war on Sauron. It's just, it's, it's just requisitioning resources in order to, uh, yeah, that's really, that's all it is. That's all it is. Or maybe his idea is he'll just move into the Lonely Mountain and, you know. Yeah. Take on Sauron from there. Yeah, their caves are nicer than my caves. Well, that's you nice. know, here's one other thing. One thing that I just throw out here, and then we should probably move on to our next thing. But okay. um, the, the last thing here, the orc in this scene doesn't say Sauron, doesn't say, the, you know, the Dark Lord, doesn't say, um, you know, the Eye says, <laughs> right, says the One. Um, and then says repeatedly um, that you will all burn. You know that uh, you will all you will end in fire. You will all burn. Um, is there? A... I'm imagining myself being Thranduil here. Um, who? <laughs> oh, there's a stretch. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. My eyebrows are nothing like I, as nice as that. That's all I meant. I just yeah, said the eyebrows. Exactly. I know. It's a serious <laughs> eyebrow stretch right there. Um, yeah. If I were Thranduil, who would I think he's talking about? I mean, am I thinking, oh, are you saying Sauron has returned? Again, I don't think that's necessarily. Maybe it is. Maybe that's what Thranduil is thinking. Maybe this is just the last in a line of things which leads Thranduil to say, oh my goodness, it's it's Sauron taking shape, you know, like here next door to me. Um, but... Um, who else would the one be, though, do you think, in Thranduil's... The dragon? Oh. Morgoth, I was, I was going to... Or the Balrog. Yeah. The Balrog. <laughs> no, I'm thinking Smaug. Um, oh. With, with oh, fire. Fire, fire yeah. yeah. With all the reference to fire. That, like, oh, the, it, what, oh so the dragon is going to come after us next? Um, and remember, there's all kinds of precedent for that, both for uh, for dragons leading armies of orcs and for dragons coming to elf kingdoms just like such as that one uh, in order to, to, to conquer them and take their riches. Um, oh, that's true. Well, yeah, because he could be thinking, geez, he's going to do to us what he did to the dwarves. Right. And why wouldn't he? I mean, that would right. I mean that you would think that would occur to a dragon in Smaug's position before too long. That's interesting. So this is going to be very interesting because, you know, what? obviously there's more conversation to be had after he cuts the guy's head off, which we're not privy to. And that's that'll be interesting to see what happens, you know, because like, yeah. hopefully he'll show us what it was he was thinking after that. Right, yeah, exactly. And I mean, I, I, I it's not that I'm saying I, I actually believe the Ark probably is working for Smaug. I'm just, again, I'm just, I'm trying to think what is... No, but, no, but Thranduil... What are they thinking? Us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, would, and that would also, if he does think that, it might explain why he orients himself more towards the Lonely Mountain. Sure, absolutely. Um, uh, and, and we'll see, because, of course, another question... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. 
I don't know. Um, we'll see. And I don't want to get too much into film three stuff either here, but, um, but, uh, anyway. Okay. So that was, there's some interesting stuff there. The last thing we want to talk about before we get to the extended edition, and there are really only a couple scenes in the extended edition that we wanted to focus on. Um, and actually we've already talked about some of it already. Um, is, but we'll talk about them again. Yeah, we will. <laughs> we will. Um, is the, uh, the soundtrack, the the title, the list of titles on the soundtrack um, has been released, uh, and of course, by looking at the sequence of the song titles, we can get uh, at least a pretty good clue about the overall shape of the story. So, for those of you who haven't seen it, I will read out... First, we'll do disc one for their two discs. Disc one has 14 tracks. They are called... The Quest for Erebor. I'm assuming that's some kind of overview beginning... Also, very clever how they said for Erebor instead of of Erebor, so they're not messing with copyright. Oh, yeah, exactly. It's a totally it's, it's a totally unrelated title. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not The Quest of Erebor. Man, yeah, that's right. I don't know how anybody could make that mistake. Make that preposition change. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. It's completely unrelated. So, yes, the totally non-copyrighted Quest for Erebor. <laughs> Wilderland... A Necromancer, that is an indefinite article, A Necromancer, which is listed as a bonus track, The House of Bjorn, Mirkwood, Flies and Spiders, The Woodland Realm, Feast of Starlight, Barrels Out of Bond, The Forest River, Bard a Man of Lake Town, The High Fells, The Nature of Evil, Protector of the Common Folk. Those are the 14 titles of the tracks on disc one. Now, some of this seems to be clear sailing um, and gives us, you know, the trajectory of the plot. Not only that we have been guessing what happened, but of course that happens in the book. Um, Wilderwind, which is uh, presumably means, you know, that like around the Carrick where they land, uh, you know, where they begin um, after they get down from the Carrick, however it is that they do that. Um, Then, the uh, a necromancer bit. I'm assuming that that's some kind of an interlude. You know that right. we're gonna like cut to Dol Guldur or something, um, right. and get some kind of scene there. So that's that's interesting. But then after that, it progresses, just as we would expect. We've got the House of Bjorn, Mirkwood, flies and spiders, the woodland realm. So yeah, Bjorn's house, the forest. Um, the fight, you know, the confrontation with the spiders, the woodland realm would be the introduction to the, uh, to the, to the elves realm, barrels out of bond, the forest river, um, and then the meeting with bard. That's all, that's all clear, sequential, obvious stuff. But wait, but I skipped one, which was feast of starlight. Um, and that's, that's gotta be something going on. Maybe that's where everybody gets drunk. (laughs) possibly well i'm thinking yeah i don't know whether that's literal or whether that's a literal or figurative title um that is if it's literal it would be like the name of some kind of feast remember they are having some kind of autumn celebration that's true um so it's possible that it's literal in that sense that there will be a great celebration which will be called the feast of starlight um which is uh, under cover of which celebration uh either they are discovered and captured as when they blunder into the elf circles in the book or when um, Bilbo um, springs them from their cells, one or the other. But it's also possible that that 
title is merely poetic rather than literal, um, in which case it could refer to some kind of interlude among the elves, um, you know, possibly some kind of Toriel sequence, Toriel Legolas sequence. I don't really know. I'm um, hoping it's literal. That would be nice. It would be kind of cool, but though as a poetic title, it's pretty cool. Feast of Starlight is kind of nice. They've actually released that. that I, I, I haven't listened to it, but that particular uh, track has been released oh, yeah? for people to be able to listen to. Yeah, I haven't listened to it yet. That's interesting. Um, anyway, so then after Bardaman of Lake Town, we get the High Fells the, and the nature, the nature of evil and protector of the common folk. Now, the High Fells is a reference to the Tomb of the Nazgul. So that's obviously right. now we cut back to Gandalf. Um this implies, by the way, unless Feast of Starlight has something to do with Gandalf, um, then the the rest of it has been away from him. If this, if the movie does follow this, it means we're going to be Gandalfless for quite some time until we finally come back to him discovering the tombs of the Nazgul there in the yeah, and, in the High Fells. And apparently, he's going to the High Fells instead of the Dol Guldur when he leaves Beorns. That's the yes, other kind of exactly right. That that's where he's going. Uh, in order to now, of course, that's on the other side of the Misty Mountains again. But whatever. Um, uh, oh, they're probably going to change where that is. Yeah, <laughs> probably so. Um, yeah. Um, now, and I'm assuming the next track, "The Nature of Evil," is kind of where he discovers. Yes. Yes. What's, what's actually going on? Now, whether that's actually at Dol Guldur or whether that's the culmination of the Tomb of the Nazgul thing. I'm not really sure. Um, but, um, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. David's right to remember that Galadriel says that the tombs of the Nazgul are in Rudauer, but I do believe the phrase the High oh, Fells right. is used there to describe the, yeah. the, the sort of the particular location. Um, if I'm remembering correctly, they, that's what yeah. they, where they, they say it is. Those. So, um, so yeah, now protector of the common folk, Bard. Yeah. Oh, maybe. Who's Is the protector of the yeah, common folk? Well, um, good question. Bard. Toriel. We've already met Bard uh, in, in the other one. Yeah. The um, hmm. Well, maybe it's still Bard. It's just a different. Yeah. Style. Yeah. Wouldn't be the master. Unless it's sort of ironical or some kind of. Uh, Oh, you know, could be. big big brotherish title he's given himself. Uh, I don't That's know. That's true. That could um, be. It's conceivable. I was thinking um, Gilbert and Sullivan. You know, the Commodore or whatever is the. Oh, anyway, That's what I was thinking when you said it could be ironic or right. comical. Right. 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 <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. David is suggesting the same thing that it's an ironic title for the, for the, for the master. For the master. Yeah. Possibly. Be. Possibly. Okay. So disc two. Disc two is thrice welcome. Girion, Lord of Dale, Durin's Folk, In the Shadow of the Mountain, A Spell of Concealment, On the Doorstep, The Courage of Hobbits, Inside Information, King's Foil, A Liar and a Thief, The Hunters, Smaug, My Armor is Iron, I See Fire, that is the closing credits song, and Beyond the Forest. Probably at the end. Those are really interesting. These are fascinating. Okay. Thrice really welcome. Are. That seems clear sailing, right? This is the welcome of the dwarves into right. into into Lake Town, right? Um, 
because even from the trailers, we've gotten the sense that they are indeed they're, they're, they're going to be brought in like they're being arrested, but it looks like they are in fact going to be welcomed, and that Bard is going to be the one grim-voiced person who is speaking against them. Right. That that trajectory already seems relatively clear uh, from the trailers. Then we get Gyrion, Lord of Dale. So are that we implies gonna... a flashback. Yeah, it? it kind of does suggest a flashback or at least a story. Um, right. Um, you know, maybe are we going to actually get Bard talking about how he's a descendant of Gyrion? Though remember, not descendant because it's not been hundreds of years; it's only been dozens of years That's true. Uh, since the dragon. His grandfather. Right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so, um, anyway, Gyrion, Lord of Dale, Durin's folk, and then in the shadow of the mountain. Um, so I'm not quite sure about that. Um, but uh um yeah I'm I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure about Doran's folk exactly is that going to be also something flashbacky or are we going to is this a what they're calling um what they're calling uh um the dwarves approaching the lonely mountain you know like the dramatic boat ride with thorin standing there looking kingly with the wind blowing his hair you know and his nice new clothes <laughs> i don't know um in the shadow of the mountain seems relatively clear hey, trish we're getting some uh we're getting some noise on your mic here oh are you oh i'm moving around well actually i'm gonna mute myself for just a second okay yeah dogs sure sure out. okay um then we've got a spell of concealment. That one I find really interesting. Um, a spell of concealment, which comes right before on the doorstep. I'm suspecting a spell of concealment has to do with the door. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'd be interested to hear what um, what uh, what those uh, what the people who are here live um, have to uh, have to say about that. What do you guys think about a spell of concealment um, coming in between in the shadow of the mountain and on the doorstep? Um, uh, yeah. Davis is also thinking about the hidden door. Um, you know, Daniel's wondering, is that possibly Gandalf? That's a good question. Um, is, is that an indication of that somewhere as the, as we get to the, as the dwarves are starting to get to the mountain and before the opening of the secret door, are we going to get a cut back to Gandalf um, and his time at Del Guldor? That's a, that's an interesting possibility, Daniel. Um, uh, Brianna thinks it just sounds like the ring. It does sound like the ring. Jeremy's thinking a similar thing. Um, uh, does it uh, refer to, to the use of the ring without disclosing the ring. Possibly, possibly. Though I, I don't want to lose what, uh, you know, Daniel Bear was suggesting. I think it, it may well be, um, it may well be Gandalf. Um, you know, you know, the thing that makes me think about that again, and, and you know, and I've, I've, I have felt um, ever since, you know, we have seen the first film and everything, um, you know, it's something that has been really striking me that they, this, the f- screenwriters have often been very, very sensitive to, you know, obscure references and small um, indications in the book, which often they sort of will seize upon and expand and use as the foundation for something much, much larger. But they notice small stuff. You know, for this is one moment of this struck me when I was just recently rewatching, I you was know, 
watching the first movie as I was, you know, watched the whole extended edition um, in preparation for the episode. And I, I, I caught, I, I didn't really notice this, I think, the first time, how when they get to the cave where they're just, where they're going to be captured by the goblins in the Misty Mountains, um, it's Glowen who says, who rubs his hands together and says, well, now let's get a fire going. Because, of course, in the book, it's, re- it's referred to that Owen and Glowen are the two dwarves who are particularly good at making fires and are the ones who <laughs> always make the fire. So, again, like, they notice stuff like this. They're, they really are reading quite carefully. What this is making me wonder is on, um, at the beginning of the, of the On the Doorstep chapter um, in the book, um, when Bilbo wakes up on the morning of the day in which the hidden door is going to open, he finds himself thinking of Gandalf and wondering where Gandalf is. And maybe today will be the day that the wizard suddenly reappears. Um, and so I'm sort of wondering if that reference to Gandalf and Bilbo thinking about Gandalf and wondering where Gandalf is might not be a kind of trigger for the screenwriters to give us a, you know, meanwhile, Gandalf is doing this. Oh. Um, You're talking about Spell of Concealment. Spell of then, Concealment, right? yeah, yeah. yeah, that's what, that's what we've been talking about. It was uh, Daniel yeah. Bear's suggestion that it's possible that may, you know, maybe that's a, That's a good point. A I was trying to figure thing. out what that would be. Yeah, yeah. it's possible. That's Anyway, then we get on the doorstep, the courage of hobbits. I mean, this appears to be what Balin was referring to mm-hmm. in the trailer, though we don't really know the context of what he's talking about. Um, uh, coming between the on the doorstep and inside information. Um, but uh, then what is to me the most puzzling track in the entire set, Kingsfoil, track nine. Kingsfoil. I know that's that's the one that got my attention as soon as I saw this list. I'm like Kingsfoil. What on earth? Kingsfoil, of course, is the common name of Athalas, the the herb, um, uh, you know, used to such great effect by Aragorn in the Lord of the Rings, um, and it comes between inside information and a liar and a thief. Now, a liar and a thief is what you know. Those are the names that Smaug accuses Bilbo of being. Um, so, okay, he's a liar. I have a theory. Thief. Yeah? You want to hear my theory? Well, yeah. what I was thinking was, first of all, King's Fall, we know it takes a king to use it, right? Yeah. As a healing yeah. herb. Yeah. We've been told that Keeley is going to get injured. Wounded, yeah. Wounded. Yeah. After Lake Town, which I, the more I think about that, the more I think it's going to be when they're on the mountain. It's going to be more similar well, to like it's got to be. Goes. It's got to be. Yeah. So I'm wondering if the king's foil comes into play somehow that Thorin uses it as king mm. under the mountain, Maybe. with Keeley being injured. So that's How are they kind of get any. What on earth? That's true. Now, Where are they getting? Maybe Roak brings it. Maybe or the, Roak. Or the moth or the thrush. <laughs> the moth. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> uh, yeah. I. I. Are you? You know. No. I bet. King's foil. That's got to be a Gandalf scene, right? Got to be. Oh, it could be. That's true. Yeah, it's got to no, be, right. especially with the with the Nazgul connection explicitly yeah. with 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 Athelas and King's foil might be expected to grow wild in Mirkwood still, even if it doesn't. It's not going to grow. And in it's the something that of could Smaug. actually be. A, there could he could make a link to Lord of the Rings using. I mean, obviously, King's foil is a link. Yeah. But I mean, the scene itself could become a link to Lord of the Rings. 
Right, right. Christopher Moffat like is, about... is hoping that this will be an Estelle cameo. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we'll get, we'll get, we'll get, we'll get juvenile Aragorn will pop up and be like, Athelas, here you go. Or we'll have Gandalf say, there is a young boy now living in Rivendell. Yes, who exactly. One day may be able to use this herb. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, um, exactly. See, Sean, Sean Strike is thinking the same way that I am here. Works against the the Black Breath, you know, and Dull Golder, something Radagast might know about. Sean, that's exactly the direction that I was just thinking, too. You know, that maybe they, you know, uh, they're in some kind of trouble or one of them gets wounded and uh, either Radagast, you know, and, and you know, and, and, and Radagast is saying, yeah, you know, we got to find some King's Foil. Um, yeah, yeah, that's, that's my, that's my leading theory about, about the King's Foil track because um, coming in between inside information and a liar and a thief. Now I'm a, my, my guess about the liar and a thief track 10 is that that's going to be when Bilbo finds the Arkenstone. I think that's possible. We'll yeah, see. I had the same thought. Because, uh, I mean, of course, in the book, that's when he becomes, a, you know, now I'm a burglar indeed, when he picks up the Arkenstone. And uh, and um, he becomes, he doesn't lie about it explicitly, but he conceals it. Now, alternatively, it's also, it could refer to the ring, um, you know, to him concealing the ring um, and lying about uh, lying about owning the ring somehow. Um, but it might also be the Arkenstone. But I assume that that's what... Um, I, I assume that the logic of their titles here, Inside Information is the conversation with Smaug, in which Smaug is going to accuse him of being a thief and a liar. And Track 10 is going to be referring to a scene a little bit later when Bilbo is acting in at least someone's eyes as a liar and a thief. Maybe um, Thorin is going to accuse him of being a liar and a thief. Yeah, that crossed my mind too. That um, could be Thorin. Yeah, thus showing his rapid descent into dragon sickness. Um, after Lion and a Thief, we get The Hunters, which of course makes me think of Azog and company. They've been The Hunters all the way through this. Um, but I really don't know. I mean, we've got The Hunters, then Smaug, then My Armor is Iron. Um, I See Fire, which comes at 14... And that's the closing credit song, as I understand. So um, that doesn't necessarily refer to the action. I, my armor is iron. I would imagine would be the actual fight at Lake Town, um, you know, and when he's going to be shot. Um, hmm. Between Smaug and my armor is iron, I would assume that that would cover the Lake Town Smaug sequence. Right. So the hunters. That's got to be a Gandalf assuming- thing again, right? Or the orcs. The yeah. orcs coming into Lake Town. Ah, see, I've forgotten. I have had no scope in this discussion for Legolas's unexpected arrival right. hunting orcs in Lake Town. Right. <laughs> As who right. could have foreseen it? Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, Actually, that is interesting. My armor is iron coming right before the final credits. You're right. I mean, it sounds to me like he's going to be flying off to Lake Town still alive at the end of the movie. Yeah. Well, I mean, I could see... I, I could see... want to give that one up. Yeah, I'm not sure. Because basically, I can see My Armor is Iron as an ironic title. Um, ah, because presumably, ah. he's going to deliver that line, My Armor right. is Iron, 
back in the inside information bit, you know, when he right. does his bra- his boast about, you know, how awesome he is and that right. the that it's going to be made the title of the track in which he gets shot by Bard is called My Armor is Iron. Right, because yeah. that's that's sort of, you know, the irony. Um Oh no, it's not. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, it's iron, okay. except where there's a hole in it. Um, right. um, Christopher asks, "Wasn't there a scene in one of the trailers of a black arrow flying at the camera?" No, that's a that's a ballista bolt flying at the dragon and bouncing off afterwards. Which I'm assuming is from the original Attack on Dale. Yeah, because we saw it in the extended edition. Yeah. I mean, all of those scenes, and this was so puzzling. People were talking about this when we were discussing that trailer last time. Um, the scene of like that unnamed dude who may or may not be Gurion shooting the um, ballista at the dragon and having the big ballista uh, quarrel bounce off him, um, uh, which was in the trailer, was in the original right. film. So I assume that's from the, there's going to be some kind of flashback where we're going to get a, we're going to get a repetition of the destruction of Dale or a reminder of the destruction of Dale at the beginning of this film, um, which will presumably incorporate some of that same footage that are, they're just going back and taking footage from film one for the trailer for film two, which I can't understand any reason for, or it might be during the Gyrian, uh, story or flashback or whatever that we're going to go back to those scenes and get a little bit more of it. And, and under, because and the reason I still I you know he's unnamed or anything of course, but I'm still I'm I still like the theory that the guy who shoots the ballista is Gurion because he looks different. He he he's he doesn't have a helmet on, right. and he's got that big beard and everything. He has a very prominent and memorable face. Um, like he doesn't look like a red shirt soldier shooting right. at the dragon as he flies over. Um, and I could see a very dramatic thing. You know, obviously we wouldn't expect Gary to be the person who mans the ballista normally. Right. But that he runs up to the ta- you know, runs up the tower and, you know, the guy who normally is at this line, they're dead and he takes over. And exactly. Him. And is killed by the dragon is, you know, and right. like the tower comes and explodes that maybe all of this comes in Bard's, you know, uh, you know, that this is the story as he's heard it, even as a childhood memory by Bard, you know, I mean, I, I didn't, I, he, it's, yeah, I mean this, the, cause the, remember this is, this is all fairly recent. It's not ancient history. Um, it's not been 150 years. Um, so, um, so anyway, so yeah, that, that, that still seems to, I'm still holding out the possibility that that might be the case there. Um, but, um, but the thing, the, the, to me, second most intriguing, um, of the tracks, most intriguing still being King's foil, but the second most intriguing is the last one beyond the forest. What's up with beyond the forest? But isn't that like, um, you know, it's like the end song of the credits, right? I mean, it's... is Okay, in which case it's not in any kind of chronological sequence? Yeah, well, yeah, you're right. I mean, I'm trying to think of the other songs, you know, that like in Lord of the Rings that ended the... the but I'm blanking. I can't remember the names of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
the encroaching armies beyond the force is true. It could be a teaser to the Battle of Five Armies, like Jeremy's saying. Yeah, yeah. Oh, by the way, I also, you know, Jeremy was also suggesting that, um, you know, we don't know absolutely for sure that Smaug is going to die. I mean, we've been speaking as if we're assuming that the death of Smaug is going to be the culmination of the second film. I still believe that. But Jeremy's right. We don't have proof of that. It's, we don't. It is no. possible that the film is going to end with him descending on Lake Town or flying down towards Lake Town, you know, maybe the film will end with, you know, the rivers the, running the arrow gold. being shot. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. The arrow flying in the air. Boom. Credits. <laughs> <laughs> Black arrow, you know, speed. Well, roll credits. Yeah. Tune in next time to discover what happens when he shoots. The... <laughs> Sarah's voting for the arrow ascending. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To be continued. Yeah, Jeremy's, Jeremy's like, yeah, he thinks he dies too, but these tracks titles make me wonder. Yeah, me, you know, and I changed my mind, I mean, for the longest time, all through extended, you know, unexpected journey, up until the time we did the riddle on Smaug, I was convinced he died at the end of this, and then I changed my mind. I won't say it because it was Corey, it was Corey's, <laughs> but I did change my mind, and I've said that he, he, uh, he dies at the end too, so. Yeah. I don't know. No, I do, th- I still, th- it, it just seems to me to make the most sense in the context of of uh of having some conclusion to this yeah the, the kind line, of right? the kind of uh yeah. of logic that we've seen with the yeah. with the other films um right. you know i'm thinking of the one of the rings films uh and the breaks that we got there and when he broke those plots um <laughs> and actually if smog dies that gives bilbo another chance to go it can't get any worse now exactly <laughs> the worst is over <laughs> Now the worst is over, right? Clearly, clearly. Okay, I was wrong the first time, but uh, actually, that would be hilarious. If they recycle that line and then have somebody smack Bilbo in the back of the head when he says it this time, that would be really funny. I would I would be deeply amused by that. Um, anyway, so really interesting stuff from the uh, from the soundtracks. Yeah. Uh, I find that a really a really fascinating little piece of uh, little piece of evidence there but now that we're an hour and a half into the episode by let's golly talk let's about get what the we extended told edition we yeah. Talk about. <laughs> yeah let's um let's let's do uh let's 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 talk about three hours of film um so well one thing i mean the f- first i just want to start with some overall reactions what was your overall reaction to the extended edition one of the things my main reaction to the extended edition was i was surprised there was so little um, yeah, it I felt it like there wasn't much added. There were some bits, though some of the bits were tiny, like one or two lines in a dialogue were cut out. Right. Um, I mean, you had to pay really close attention to notice some of the extra stuff. Unlike there were just there were not that many whole scenes that had been cut and were put back in to the extended edition. Maybe I'm misremembering. Maybe you know my uh, uh, you know my memory of the Lord of the Rings um, is deceiving me, but. I recall just more totally new scenes and, 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 and absolutely new uh, material um, in the extended editions of the Lord of the Rings films when they came out. Um, whereas here, there are very few scenes that were totally not there. No, um, I know. I mean, it's, it's like they really kind of efforted to make an extended edition. You know what I mean? They, like, pushed... You know, oh, well, we have to make an extended edition, so let's just put these little itty-bitty scenes back in. Right. I mean, it was kind of disappointing to me. It wasn't at all like Lord of the Rings extended edition. No, it didn't seem like that to me either. Um, and, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, even just to think about this another way, um, when, uh, you know, whenever I've done, as I've done for many years, you know, hosting my Lord of the Rings movie marathons, um, I would never show anything but the extended editions for those. You know, of course we right. see the extended editions. Um and, you know, for years I've been like, you know, why would you show the theatrical version when you can watch the extended edition, which has like all of these, you know, these, this, like this extra fun stuff, you know, if I'm contemplating a Hobbit movie marathon, it's not obvious to me. Like it's not, yeah. it's, it's not cut and dry. I'd be like, well, I'd probably show the extended edition, but you know, yeah, it, it, it wouldn't only, matter all that much. 13, I think there's like 13 minutes total yeah. of extended edition stuff, and it's really kind of spread. It's spread out a lot, so you know, there's only a couple of really like the White Council scene is probably the biggest key scene, you know, like contiguous scene, right? That got added back in, but everything else is kind of little dribs and drabs of stuff. Yeah, yeah, and and sometimes on at least and dwarves one, as frat boys. Yes, the dwarves <laughs> being frat boys more often, including nude frat boys right. at one point, nude which was boys. particularly disturbing. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, but um, so that was that was one reaction. The other thing, and this, the, my second reaction was a positive reaction. Was had I seen the extended edition first, I would have come... One of the first reactions I would have come away from Hobbit film number one with was, wow, they did a lot of songs. Yeah. I would have said, man, I'm impressed, especially, you know, coming right off of, you know, finishing my Hobbit book like I was and all the (laughs) emphasis I put on the songs. I would have been like, man, they did it pretty well you know they didn't they didn't do tra la and i didn't expect them to but by golly you know that was a musical film right they, they burst into right. songs if not as frequently yet as persistently as they burst into song in the book um and I, so you know now of course two of those uh, songs were cut out i mean i remember when we saw the tracks for the soundtrack um of the first film you know, one of our first responses was, well, apparently they do chip the glasses and crack the plates. That's a little surprising that they kept that song, but it's not obvious that they kept any other song. They only right. kept chip the glasses and, and crack the plates. Um, but apparently, no, they, well, they added the Man in the Moon song, but that's okay. Um, and they kept the Goblin Town song, which, of course... Right was one of the things that we were wondering if they would keep. At least I was one. It was That was one of my top candidates for a song that might be kept. Um, and it turns out it was kept. They did a full version of that song, but, <laughs> but just cut it from the theatrical version. So that's, that was, that was, I thought, I thought that was really neat. Now I have to admit, I did. Well, I really love the fact that they did the Goblin Town song, but I wasn't awful fond of it. The song itself. Now, it wasn't verbatim, right? I mean, he used a lot of the lines. A lot of the was... lines, yes. Yeah. But it was significantly altered. Not just, I mean, like, that is the overall focus of it was altered. Well, in the book, it's really a marching song, isn't yes. it? They, they use it as a cadence to march their prisoners into the, into the Goblin King's presence, right? Yes. And the major change that's brought about thematically in the song as it's done in the film, as opposed to how it's done in the book, is that it is not a song about 
the goblins in general. It's a solo right. by the Goblin King. Narcissist. And, exactly. Goblin and it's 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 the song is narcissistic as he sings it. In right. fact, some of the parts that are kept verbatim become nonsensical in the Goblin King's narcissistic version of the song. In, I'm thinking in particular of the opening lines. Um, you know, uh, 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 um, crack, uh, cra- uh, crack, snap, the black crack makes no sense yeah. whatsoever in the mouth of the Goblin King uh, right. when he's singing that song. Um, but, uh, you know, and when... It, and and he shifts around the yammering and bleeding part um, from slavery to torture. Now, those two things are not unrelated to each other, of course. But again, we have the difference between I have you as my prisoners and I'm going to torture you both for fun and until and while I'm interrogating you to the goblins just plan to take the dwarves down to their to Goblin Town and to make them work as slaves. Um, so it's it's a different it's a different a totally different effect. Again, the book song is a little window into goblin culture and goblin right. mindset. Um, the Goblin King song is a piece of personal bravado of him, of his own, you know, and, and talking right. about himself. Um, and he even says, doesn't he at the end, that was a little ditty I wrote or something like yes, that. Yes, exactly. Something of his own composition. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, and the way that it's made into a performance piece with all the other goblins, you know, looking like they're in, you know, um, uh, you know, opera boxes up around, you know, <laughs> as he performs in the middle, um, you know, that's, um, that, that's that, that, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's clearly staged. I mean, there's, there's, there's obvious intention of comedy in the way that that's staged, mm-hmm. um, you know, that to, 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 to make him look. <laughs> To make David says silly. we might as well have had talking animals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, you know, it's I I don't mind the Goblin King being used for you know the the you know the the Great Goblin being used for for um, comic relief and turning him into that kind of a comic figure. I, I, I was I was fine with it actually. I didn't I didn't feel that it was awful in the sort of effect that it had. Um, the fact that the Goblin King is turns out to be somebody who like doesn't even seem to take himself completely seriously with the, uh, you know, uh, with, you know, Trisha, you know, the like little pirouetting that he does, pirouette at the end, yes. you know, as you're pointing out, um, uh, you know, that's, that's, it, again, it's clear that he's not taking himself entirely seriously, but I'm fine with that. I'm actually fine with a kind of self-aware, slightly self parodying, um, you know, Goblin King, um, you know, who sings this song and looks actually, you know, what it reminded me of what, what in fact, as I was watching and I was wondering if they were even trying to make a reference to when the got, when they, when they have that shot that shows the upper torso of the Goblin King up close and he's holding up his arms, gesturing to the goblins around to cheer louder as it's sort of circling around. It looked exactly like the shot in Shrek where Shrek has just <laughs> Shrek and donkey have just been fighting the match in the ring, you know, to, to, and, 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 you know, and he, and, and it showed that shot of him, you know, l- l- lifting up his arms and calling right. for the applause of the crowd. Again, I don't even, I don't know if it's an actual, re- it looked like a, almost funny. like a reference to that, but it's, but basically it had that kind of feel like that moment feels like, like the same kind of parody almost that, but it's like self parody, but it's not right. the, it's not turning the genre on. It's because you can't do that. I mean, you can't 
devolve in the middle of this film into something which is parodying the form of this film itself. But the great goblin himself can parody himself, you know, can can sort of, you know, the fact that the, um, that the great goblin himself is something of an ironist, you know, is something of a, uh, is, 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 uh, you know, laughs at himself and, and finds his own kingdom somewhat absurd. That I have no problem with, actually. I think right, that that's kind right. of intellectually interesting. And, and actually, you're—I think you're fairly right on in terms of Barry Humphreys does a fair amount of talking about how he characterized the, the Goblin King, the Great Goblin, in the documentaries that come with the extended edition. And as I recall, it's been a couple of weeks since I've watched it, but as I recall, he actually basically says this—you know—that he he kind of you know he plays him as somebody who thinks a lot of himself and thinks he's quite the intellectual and. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. he'd be the type that would be like an opera, you know, a professed opera lover or something right. like that. You know, right. um, but who would also that, be keenly aware of the fact right. that his performance is not, in fact, a good performance, uh, right. and right. that all the goblins are cheering for him, and he is on some level laughing at them for cheering at him because right. he knows he's not really good, but he's laughing at the fact that he can make them all cheer. You know, I, so yeah, just the fact that he would be sort of aware of the, uh, you know, sort of the ridiculousness and and irony of that whole situation that 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 struck me as how he was doing the Goblin King. It is interesting because it is very different from the from the Great Goblin we get in the in the book. I mean, yeah, well, I mean, of course, we don't get that much of the Great Goblin in the book, and he, he's clearly, and of course, very different from the Rankin Bass. Great Goblin. Well, you know, hard to improve, <laughs> I know, on the Rankin Bass Great Goblin. Um, yeah, yeah. With the um, deflating balloon at the with end. The def- yeah, exactly. Yeah. Though I guess actually the Great Goblin kind of does that uh, in the in the Peter Jackson film too. He doesn't fly around like a balloon, but... No, he just falls on him. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, but, Let's uh, talk about the Pretty Woman sequence. Yeah. yeah what, you should explain first, people who don't get the reference, <laughs> why you are calling this the Pretty Woman sequence. At the very beginning, during the voiceover, during the the intro, uh, where Bilbo's talking about uh, the kingdom under the Erebor, Air, Air, yeah. and and where where um, Thranduil comes in and does that very hotly debated whether it's fealty or just whatever it is, visit <laughs> yeah. his visit. The piece that they didn't show in the main in the in the theater release that they show in the extended edition is that while he's there standing in front of um, uh, Thror doing whatever he's doing they bring out the dwarves bring out a chest of, of treasure and open it in front of him very much like richard Gere does with julie roberts in <laughs> pretty woman and also very much like that he reaches toward this cask that they've opened up and right as he does right as he gets his hand gets there they snap it shut same way as pretty woman <laughs> and thranduil's very annoyed by this and then he just turns and walks away yeah, um, that was the one part of the extended edition that made me exclaim out loud when I was watching it. <laughs> what did you exclaim? Uh, what I exclaimed was, oh, well, okay then. <laughs> because for crying out loud, my, I mean, the main thing was like, why the heck did they cut that? Because without it, the whole, th- I, I mean... 
the whole question, all of this speculation, all of the wondering why on earth, what is going on when Thorin goes out and asks the elves for help and they turn away. And of course, I talked for a long, trying to make some sense of this. I talked for a long time at the beginning of this second season about how, like, there must be some misunderstanding. We're probably going to learn that, like, Thranduil had some perfectly good reason, but, like, it just looked like betrayal to Thorin, but it really wasn't as bad as it looked. No, it was exactly as bad as it looked. But he had a cause for it, and they just Im- omitted the cause entirely. And it was all of what fifteen seconds. I know. How much did they gain scene? by cutting that? I mean, the the oh man, that I just, I just, yeah, that's um, that was completely, um, uh, that was that was completely. I, I don't even understand that at all. But anyway, okay, plus so, that also handles the whole fealty question too doesn't it i mean yes it does because they made it look like he was coming to you know to 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 swear fealty uh right. to thror that's exa- that's the context in which they and they presented it um with him sitting there on the throne and thranduil coming and kneeling before him and that's all we got was him coming and kneeling before him and then later on inexplicably betraying them whereas when you add, first of all when you add the business about him rising to his feet and standing there and being presented apparently with a very valuable gift from thror who can obviously afford it um uh you have already this seems to put things on a different um footing Already that does not any longer look like fealty. Now this looks like the gift of one ally to another. And I say that not just because it's a gift, because of course one always gives gifts uh, to, to one's vassals. That's, that's, that's a, that, that's a very good thing that one does, but I would have expected, but the posture was, I would have expected him to still be kneeling and receiving the gift from from Mm -hmm. his Mm -hmm. overlord. If that's in fact what was happening. So the fact that we saw Thranduil and his entourage standing in order to receive what looks like the gift uh, from the king. In my mind, that looked, I put it on a totally different footing and and it it looked like rather the gift to an ally, which is then inexplicably pulled back, which which looks like a calculated insult. If that's how Thranduil took it, I can't blame him for taking it as a calculated insult. We're going to show this to you and make like we're giving it to you, and then we're going to slam it in front of you and walk away, which obviously ticks Thranduil off, as whom wouldn't it tick off? Right. Uh, as it Again, it clearly seems to be a, a, a calculated insult on their part. Now, here's the other fascinating thing. Bilbo's voiceover. So we don't only see it. We don't only see an insult apparently deliberately given and uh, received with anger, and th- therefore also you know already before the attack, long before the attack of Smaug, the apparent evidence of the breach in the relationship between the elves and the dwarves. But we get the voiceover um, from Bilbo, which refers back to the to the book stuff. That is, Bilbo says, when the dwarf slams it shut, Bilbo says, The elves say the dwarves stole their treasure. The dwarves tell another tale. They say the elf king refused to give them their rightful pay. That's from The Hobbit, of course. Right. Talking about the ancient feud between the elves and the dwarves. And now, it's fascinating that this... um, It's fascinating that this would be uh, brought in here. Um, I mean... Goodness, 
it would take a long time to unpack that because the history of that passage is so complex um, and even so uncertain in so many ways. That is, you know, many of you will remember the context in the Hobbit book in which that line is delivered is talking about the distrust that the Wood Elves feel for the dwarves in general, um, and that there had been an ancient feud between the elves and the dwarves, and it refers back to these things, that the the um, uh, the the elves say the dwarves stole their treasure, but the but it's only fair to add that the dwarves tell another story and that the elf king refused to give them their rightful pay. This seems to be a reference back to the Silmarillion stories, um, around uh, around uh, the Nauglamir, as it comes later to be called, the Nauglafring, as it was still called at that time, before Tolkien changed the name to Nauglamir in later revisions of the Silmarillion material. Um, but anyway, that 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 whole story, um, it is uh, it is still my suspicion that Tolkien is not meaning this to be a continuous link. At the time that he wrote it in The Hobbit, that he meant that is still my my belief that he meant this not to be um, actually continuous with the Silmarillion story. But uh, but anyway, he's he's um, he's he's referring back to anyway. So that that they would try to take that element, um, that element of the feud. Uh, how I am understanding the film, how I am understanding that voiceover to be going along with this scene, is that we are seeing that that debate that is you know we're told you know in the hobbit book we're told there is an ancient feud between elves and dwarves that goes back to a long time that goes back a long time to this ancient um this ancient grievance on both sides that both of them say they've been wronged by another and the film i am taking it by the voiceover is showing us this is it this is that ancient feud. Right. This is when right. the feud, the elves and dwarves had been the starts. best of chums. Here is the beginning of it right here. <laughs> so, okay. So that scene with the presentation of the jewels and the slamming it of it shut in Thranduil's face is the moment, or at least is the, whatever that the whole story was. And we don't know. I mean, the elf king refused them their rightful pay for what? Well, that's, yeah, see, that's, again, I mean, I, I we don't, why would they do, you know, the, the whole slamming of the thing in his face and stuff, if it's that the Elven King refused the rightful pay that I'm not getting, anyway, well, it's the, kind of strange. The only way that I, here's the only way that I can understand those lines as applied to the scene that were shown there in mm-hmm. the, in the clip. Um, the Elves say the Dwarves stole their treasure. My understanding then would be that the gems that and... are in that casket were originally were the elves, the elf the Thranduil, for whatever reason, good or bad, believes he has a claim on those, that those are his gems. Maybe he contracted the dwarves to mine them for him or something. Or something, yeah. Um, because they kind of look sort of Silmarillish. Now, I, I, you know, I don't want to take for granted that everybody knows, everybody listening knows the Silmarillion inside and out. Um, but the, the, the sort of the, the, germ of this goes back to the Silmarillion story when uh, 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 when Thingol, the elf king in the Silmarillion um, has the the necklace of the dwarves, this beautiful artifact that was made by the dwarves uh, this necklace of gems 
and he has a, one of the Silmarils, the luminous gems uh, of, of Feanor, of the elves, and he wants them combined. So he hires these teams of uh, dwarven craftsmen, and they come and they reset the Naglamir, and they set the... Um, and they they set the Silmaril in the middle of it. Then they want to keep the Silmaril for themselves and the Nagl- and the Naglamir, and they um, um, but and they kill Thingol, and then the elves uh, capture them and kill them, and then a war erupts between the dwarves and the elves. So, um, whether. Now, it's still to me a question of what the elf king refu- was refusing to pay them for. It might be the mining of those gems or the cutting of those gems, perhaps. Maybe the they the elven king had discovered some beautiful raw gems, which he gave to the dwarves to cut, and now they won't give them back um, until they're paid. And, you know, they're slamming the treasure because they're saying, this is, uh, see, here here's the work that we've done for you, but I'm slamming the casket shut. Uh, mm-hmm. because you haven't paid us yet, um, and we're keeping them because you haven't paid us, and Thranduil saying, those are mine, you can't keep them, and I'm going to go off in a huff, and now both of them feel like they have a grievance. Maybe it's as simple as that. Maybe um, there is a reference. This is and this is another one of those little Easter eggs, um, which, they, I mean, one thing I will say about Philippa Boyens, I do not always agree with her interpretations. I do not always agree with the adaptation choices that she make, but she knows the books. She yeah, has read does. them. She reads them very carefully yeah. and she knows them very well. Um, there is a reference. Gimli tosses off a reference at one point to the fact that the elves of the dwarves of Erebor helped in the construction of the, the elven King's underground mm-hmm. home in Mirkwood. Um, he throws that out to Legolas when, there, when he, Gimli, is talking about the glittering caves of Aglarond and says, you think those caves are fair that that your father dwells in, in Mirkwood, and dwarves helped in their, in their, in their carving long ago. Um, could it be that... Uh, you know the, the the you know Thranduil decided to give his home a makeover or to you know add a add a new wing uh, to the underground <laughs> palace of uh, the elves and uh, exactly yeah, some swank new dungeons that would be awesome yeah yeah I, I got this sweet new dungeon suite in, so installed thanks to my my friends the dwarves um, uh, but uh, but then they don't pay them or and then they yeah but I'm not gonna pay them but I'm not gonna we had, pay them we had, a, we had disagreement about a light switch and I'm not going to pay Exactly them. right. Yeah. Yeah. No, they, they ran over time as well. I mean, <laughs> nothing was done on time. They left dirty footprints all over the rest of the house. <laughs> they threw food all the time. Exactly. Yeah. Oh my God. And the plumbing. But anyhow, so um, whatever, you know, it, it, so that's one other thing. It's, it's not to me necessarily obvious what the Elf King is refusing to pay them for. There's no gesture at an explanation as to what that is. I don't know. But, um, but anyway, notice all of these um all of these ideas, all of these speculations, all of this stuff that I've been talking about now for like 20 minutes <laughs> is raised by that 10 seconds of screen time yeah, that absolutely. they cut out. Absolutely. And it it's oh man, there was nowhere else. That's the only there... place I felt where the film was actually made muddy and unclear right by that and when i saw the thing uncut i was like oh my gosh why didn't we get that in the I film know. 
It would have been so easy to leave that in. I do want to do an, give you an aside here, you know, about Philippa Boyens, which, uh, again, was in one of the documentaries that came along with the extended edition. And I had to laugh because, you know, as you say, we don't necessarily agree with her. But I would say, apparently, she more than Jackson knows the books. Because yes. in, in the documentaries, more than one person says he gets these ideas, you know, let's do this. We should do this. and We should do that. And apparently it was very common for her to say, you can't do that. Right. Because right. in you know, Tolkien did it. And he, he'd like hang his head and walk away. Right. So, so I think we owe her, at, you know, we may not agree with her all the time, but we do owe her a little bit of thanks that this movie didn't go even further off the rails. Than, than, yeah. Than it may have. Yeah. No, and it's true. And you know, nothing could be more likely than that, you know, I've been doing a horrible injustice to her over the years, you know. <laughs> I mean, as I've said before, I kind of unashamedly, uh, unashamedly, uh, you know, have sort of used her as my as my scapegoat whipping or whipping girl. boy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, because I don't want to, you know, I it, it, it's like, uh, you know, the king is not a bad king. He just has evil counselors, you know. Um, it's like the classic medieval line. That's 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 the oh, it's always the first step before you depose the king is you just start complaining right. about his counselors. Uh, and so, you know, I like the Peter Jackson films and admired the Peter Jackson films enough to not just want to badmouth Peter Jackson, so I could be like, it's that Philip Boyens, you know. Well, I gotta um, tell you, I I have like a secret hope that someday you get to do a Tolkien chat with her. I, I think I you would and love her that. talking together would be just amazing. Yeah, that would be fun. Just amazing. That would now, be fun. back to this scene, by the way, Christopher Moffat points out, and I think this is a good point, that Thorin's face, when this slamming shut of the cask happens, yes. is one of shock and amazement, yes. um, which I think is probably important to note. Yes, I agree. Um, and in the voiceover, it's then connected that as we segue uh, very quickly after that, um, to the descent of Thror into dragon sickness. I mean, in the in the uncut version, that moment of the slamming shut of the casket is the first sign of yeah. the decline. Uh, another reason why it should have been left in because it sets it up. Yeah, you know, because you're right. Because it's again another muddy another muddy piece in the theatrical release. They just kind of shift to this thing with no real explanation or demonstration. Right, Thor's love of gold had grown too fierce. We get, and again in the uncut, we get that immediately after the right. uh, the the scene with Thranduil. Um But anyway, yeah, no, it's it's that would have really made a whole. A whole lot so for this reason sense. alone, you have to show the extended edition when you, if you do a That's true. Hobbit marathon. That's true. Yeah, for the for the sake of that of that fifteen seconds of unnecessarily yes. cut footage. Uh, yeah, yeah. But um, also for the next thing we're going to talk about, which is the White Council stuff. Yeah, I mean, I the White Council stuff is certainly quite... longer and richer, and that's what we wanted to spend yes. the majority of our time on. Um, so since it's been two hours already, I think we should start the majority of our time. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But uh, we've already talked about this some. There are several things that were brought in in the White Council scene, uh, in the uncut White Council scene, um, that I thought were of great interest. Of course, one of the most high-profile things that had been cut out and was added back in are the reference to the seven dwarven rings that of course had been something we'd been talking about all along are the seven rings going to be involved are we going to get the dwarf ring um you know is that going to be involved in the story in some way um and on the one hand we got it 
we got the reference to it. You know, we, we, we acknowledged the existence of the dwarf rings. That in itself is not shocking, because of course we had already gotten the seven dwarf rings at the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring. Like the fact that seven dwarf rings existed is not news, uh, and not an innovation at this point. However, I am not at all... Sh- in the end, uh, I had an almost kind of counterintuitive response to Gandalf's reference to the Seven Rings. In... I have the dialogue here. You want me to read it? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. So this is the piece that got added in. So Gandalf says, Does it not worry you that the last of the dwarf rings should simply vanish along with its bearer? Of the seven dwarf rings, four were consumed by dragons, two were taken by Sauron before he fell in Mordor. The fate of the last dwarf ring remains unknown, the ring that was worn by Thryon, although he's a Thrain. And then Saruman says, Without the ruling ring of power, the seven are of no value to the enemy. To control the other rings, he needs the one. And that ring was lo- lost long, long ago. It was swept out, to, swept out to sea by the waters of the Anduin. Right. Saruman says that. Saruman says that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. Now, um, several, several sort of conclusions I draw from this. One is that... Um, Thran's disappearance is obviously significant. Um, and whether we meet Thran again, and whether my own personal crazy riddle answer induced fantasy of <laughs> Thran still being alive as a hermit and uncaptured is going to turn out to be true or not, it's clear that Thran's disappearance at the Battle of Azanul Bazar is going to come up again and is definitely, you know, uh, he may be already dead, he may be in prison, Gandalf might find his corpse or whatever, but it's very clear that Thran is still on Gandalf's mind and is going to come in again. I mean, that was already pretty clear, I thought. I mean, that is... Yeah, with, also with the foreshadowing we saw of, you know, Thorin being so convinced his dad was dead and the look, the glance between Gandalf and Balin. Yeah, and the and, and even and the reference to Thran that Azog makes right. um, at the end of the film, you know, that, that too seemed all to be an indication that we're setting up we're setting up a return later on. However, um, none of that necessarily meant that the dwarf ring was going to be mentioned or brought in at all. Um, however, Gandalf's reference to the ring and Saruman's uh, rejoinder to it um, led me to, b- to believe that the dwarf rings are not really going to play a role mm-hmm. in the story. Um, even well, I guess, Except for that Lego set, you know, don't forget the Lego set. Oh, yeah, story. the hidden ring underneath yeah. the uh, statue. Yeah. I did forget. <laughs> I should never forget the Lego set. Oh, <laughs> I have so learned my lesson. I'm going to be so excited for the film three Lego sets now. I'm already anticipating them. Um yeah, yeah. We should get a hold of Duplo and see if they'll fund Riddles in the Dark because we yeah. spent so much time on the Lego sets. Seriously, yeah, maybe we get them to throw us some some advertising money next time. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, um, but uh, so yeah. Well, see, the thing that bugs me about this, you know, is to bring to bring the if they're going to bring the dwarf ring in to the second movie. It kind of irritates me because then they will have assumed that we've seen the extended edition. (laughs) (laughs) You know? I mean, they didn't say anything about it in the theatrical release at all. It's true. But 
that could probably be handled by, I assume the primary significance it's going to have is as a motivation for Gandalf to search for Thran. Mm-hmm. That that's going to be one of the things on his mind. That he's going to, um, that, that even potentially he finds that as an important link or clue that leads him to who Sauron is. Um, um, that Thran disappeared. Thran, who is the last holder of the ring. And again, you know, Gandalf makes a big deal of that in the extended White Council scene. You know, is it, you know, does it not matter anything to you that, the, you know, that we don't know where the last of the seven rings, you know, went, that the, that he disappeared. Um, so that Gandalf would want to investigate that seems clear. So we've got, we have, you know, where, where we sort of leave Gandalf here at the end of film one is there are at least two things then that we, or, or at least three things that we know that he wants to investigate. What is going, you know, who is this necromancer person? What's going on at Del Guldur? But then also, um, have the ringwraiths broken out of this tomb in which they have been apparently imprisoned in, in, in Rudar? And where's Thran? And, you know, what happened to him? Who has him and why? Um, and what Gandalf seems to be implying is that not just that the disappearance of the last of the seven rings is in itself kind of a big deal, but who was seeking this, the, the, the ring and why, um, that it's probably not a coincidence that Thrain just vanished from that battle. Um, he appears to have been snatched for a reason. That reason was presumably that he had the ring. So somebody wanted the ring for a reason. Who was it and why did they want it? Um, that seems to be uh, from the extended, a council scene it, it, that it seems to be one of the things on Gandalf's mind. Um, so is that going to factor into his hunt with Radagast here in film two? I can imagine him saying enough to Radagast because remember Radagast isn't at the council, so some oh, of this right. stuff is going to have to be right. repeated to Radagast anyway. So he could have filled it in, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so we can get it. Yeah. it so if it's going to factor in and be be a factor, it can come in that way. And then right. the reference back in the council scene would have been unnecessary, right? Which would explain uh, why they cut it. Now, the other thing that's interesting to me is that this um, rejoinder by Saruman, if I'm recalling correctly in my in my Tolkien, the Tolkien version of this, um, this is the kind of argument that Saruman used after he had turned. Yes. And it, it was his way of, of diverting the council yes. from taking any action. Which brings me to wonder if this maybe implies that he's already turned. He delivers this very deadpan. He delivers this very calmly, much as you would expect Saruman would, even after yes. he's turned, frankly. Yes. So, we, you know, we don't know it here, but I'm just wondering if somehow we're going to find out. Yes, I agree. That line in particular leaves much more, provides much more reason for us to suspect that Saruman is already turning to evil. Mm-hmm. In the Hobbit film, right. absolutely. That's how I took that, very much. Um, in the Tolkien version, the White Council met twice uh, to talk about this stuff. The first time, Saruman said, don't worry, let's not do anything. They, they, like, that Gandalf was arguing, let's go after this necromancer person right now. Um and Saruman said, no, don't worry. And, and, and because he didn't want them going to Dol Guldur, because Dol right. Guldur was very near the Gladden Fields, and Saruman himself was already searching for the ring 
around the Gladden Fields. Right. So Saruman had his own team of scuba divers out there in the River Anduin, and he didn't want the rest of the White Council to come around there and mess with See that. all the hooker rigs. Exactly. <laughs> the, the second time uh, they wanted to do it, Saruman was convinced to go along with them, and they, drew, and they got together to drive Sauron out of Mirkwood. And the reason we are told that he did this, that he went along with it the second time, was that... Uh, his scuba teams were already meeting Sauron's scuba teams right. who were also scouring the Anduin River. And so Saruman says, I want to get Sauron the heck away from the Gladden Fields and the Join Anduin South River so that my scuba teams can uh, be the only ones searching there um, and get Sauron out of there. So, um, so, but, but yes, in short, both times he, he was already... Uh, he was already on the crooked path. Now, Mike asked a good question, um, and I think this is probably one that would be on people's minds. I think I may know the answer, and I'm going to test myself here before okay. you answer. But what is the benefit in the books of Sauron recovering the Dwarven Rings without the ruling ring? Um, as I recall from past lectures that you've given, it's because they were failures. Yeah. He was trying to order. get them back because they, yeah, it was a recall order. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't work the way he wanted them to work. Yeah. The problem with the, 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 there's a major flaw in the, in the seven rings from Sauron's perspective, which is that they work. Um, and they don't, they're designed to suck you in and make you into a wraith like the, like the human rings do, but they completely failed to do that. All they do is just kind of make you more greedy and a little bit nastier. If you're a dwarf. If you're yes. a dwarf. Um, and really dwarves were already greedy and a little bit nasty anyhow. So, I mean, yeah, like some, some interesting and profitable wars resulted from that. But really the unfortunate thing is that the seven rings seem to kind of be a net gain for their possessors. Um, and, and so and not really any benefit to Sauron. No. Yeah. Not much benefit to Sauron at all. Like yeah. So he wanted them back um, uh, because they were a failure. We're not given any indication that there was any direct gain that like, Sauron, we're imagining Sauron in some chamber somewhere cackling with, you know, uh, malicious glee saying, now I have four of the seven rings with this power. I shall be invincible. Like, that's not the point at all. You know, he's it doesn't matter to him. I don't think he gains power from getting them. It's just they they in fact work. They they, they do, in fact, bring um, uh, power to his enemies. Um, And so some dissension, too, which is kind of cool. But um uh, but yeah, it, it doesn't, uh, um, so it's basically him just kind of being like, well, they didn't work the way I wanted. I'm wanting, I'm going to get him back kind of thing. Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, basically they, they, they could be, I mean, I, and I don't know if there's anything else that they could do. I mean, even saying that, you know, what the rings could do, the power of the rings is so, um, well, I mean, it's like all of the magic in Tolkien, you know, it's, it's, I mean, again, for the people who are used to playing role-playing games, you know, it's so tempting to start looking at the rings of power in like role-playing game terms, you know, right. and to think like, well, you know, so the Dwarven rings would allow you to cast like four, seven level spells, but it only had 25 charges apiece. I mean, that's not how these magical artifacts work in Tolkien's world. It's absolutely nothing like that. So the question of what you could do with, you know, what could the heir of Durin do in what ways exactly was the heir of Durin's power enhanced by possessing the ring of power is not really clear. 
it helped them to you know at the at at the at the 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 heart of each of the of the large of the largest of the dwarf you know the seven great dwarf hordes was a golden ring we're told well okay but what does that mean i mean <laughs> by what mechanism did the ring of power uh you know help them to 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 build a horde we don't know um exactly but it does seem likely that the ring of that the dwarven rings amplified you know the power right. the potency the ca- the capacity probably the capacity for command and for war um that those dwarven kings had so he doesn't want them out there um they're right. a net loss to him um so he can neutralize them at least seems to be what he wants to do um <laughs> gets one to the mouth <laughs> And David says, I wonder why the dragons consumed them. Were they tasty? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a little that. Um, and Gandalf just tosses that off. You know, yeah, of those four yeah. he has recovered and three the dragons have consumed. As if like it's he the perfectly logical the thing bo- for them to do. He tosses it off in the books. Yeah, the same way, exactly. Right? Just... Yeah, that, that's exactly what he says in the book. And, and, and the others the dragons have consumed. Um, with no commentary on it, you know, and... and, and <laughs> As if it were the most perfectly natural thing in the world. As if, as if, eating it is the first thing you would expect any dragon to do the minute he saw it. Like well, naturally, you know, they they consumed him, you know, whatever. Um, but because uh, I mean, even even if you don't think of it as simplistic, you know, like the dragon being like, I bet you know, like this is a this is a super. T- I'm gonna I'm gonna reward myself uh, by eating this super tasty ring. I don't, I don't, you know, like the, you know, the rings of power are like super well, maybe, bonbons to, maybe to they, dragons. Maybe they were actually on the dwarf, right. the dwarf bearers. That's right. That's the right. It's, it's, dwarf. it's one of those ill-defined, uh, nebulous powers of the ring is that it make the makes the dwarven uh, wielders especially toothsome and savory uh, to the dragons who consume them. It, it 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 amplifies their flavor by a factor of five. Um, or seven, perhaps. Seven, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't really know, but um, um, and maybe they were accidentally consumed in the consumption of the of the of the dwarven. Uh, though you'd think, um, you know, uh, not to get too scatological about it, that the ring would come back around again. You know, uh, <laughs> I mean, I've raised, I've raised. Two two toddlers. I know what happens when a ring gets swallowed. Uh, but anyway, uh, but dragons, dragons' digestive systems might be different. So, so it's you know. it's only a matter of time. Uh, but anyhow, the, the dragons' digestive system probably just melts it down because it's so hot. Well, yeah, sure, but. No, I mean yes. I mean on on the one hand, yes. I mean that's 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 exactly, of course, what I was. I mean, I, I will say that even 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 as a teenager, I was not quite as immature as I am now in imagining <laughs> that when he says that dragons consume them, that he ate them and pooped it out again later on. But uh, what I imagined, even 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 in my more dignified teenage years, uh, was that they were consumed by fire. But that doesn't. You know, you've act- opened up a whole new line of thought for me. I've never I've never actually thought of what was what would happen after they ate the rings. Exactly. See, See? Corey. Ever since I've known you, you've just opened up new vistas for me. This is one of the this is one of the things that parenthood really just opens these new <laughs> angles on the world to you. 
But anyhow, I probably come up with a conference paper. <laughs> or Sarah, is Sarah still on? Sarah's our dragon lady. Sarah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, see, Sarah, there's a new angle you've got to you've got to you've got to follow there. There we go. Um, <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Especially since there's a really cool word, um, which um, which uh, which for for dragon droppings you know there's a, there's a fumets there's a there's the really yeah there's a word for that f-e-w-m-e-t a fumet now, is a dragon somebody had dropping. to make that up at some point it's an old word it's an old word i, I don't remember word. how old i'd have to look it up in the OED, is it in beowulf but... i wonder if it's in beowulf i don't i doubt it i don't know um but uh, anyway, Brianna says she was really <laughs> not expecting the conversation to go in this direction tonight. Yeah, neither was I five this minutes is ago. What we, we keep you guessing on Rivers in the Dark. <laughs> yeah. But the point is that uh, yes, I too always assumed that you know what it what it actually meant was consumed by fire. But that's not necessarily very like a dragon wouldn't set out to do that. That's not how dragons treat. They don't melt treasure down. In fact, it's one of the things of all of the silly things in the conversation with Smaug seen in the Rankin Bass version of the Hobbit film. The thing that I find most ridiculous is, okay. The thing I find most irritating is Smaug's voice, but the thing I find most ridiculous is not Bilbo's tone in mockery. It's not the thrush's presence. It's not the flashlight search beams coming out of the eyes of Smaug. What I find most ridiculous is that when he's showing off about how awesome, when he's delivering his, you know, my, my, uh, you know, my, uh, my wings are a hurricane and, and everything else. Um, when he's delivering that line, he breathes fire around and melts half of his horde down into slag. <laughs> Smoke would never do that. It's ridiculous. Um, so basically, but it was a question that I never really asked myself. In fact, indeed, really until now, why, how did they, I mean, I guess presumably they got destroyed by fire when their wielders were destroyed by fire. Um, you know, that, that the dwarf king in question got burned up by the dragon and his ring was destroyed when he was burned up is the only way it makes any sense to me because the dragons certainly aren't going to eat them like candy, nor are they going to deliberately destroy them afterwards. They covet treasure like that. So yeah, you'd think that they would actually keep a ring of power. I mean, yeah, exactly. And like, a, like the Arkenstone or something like that. Right. By the way, I do want to point out that, you know, I think I have come up with the title for this episode. Yeah. Hail, Hail Fellow and Fumet. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Um, you know, before we, before we close down, I'm giving, I'm giving you an out here, Corey. Yeah, this, is, yeah. this is the graceful exit from this yeah, topic. But... Um, one of the things that I wanted to mention way back when we were talking about the music, or is there something else you want to say before we actually leave? No, Oh, no, no. I'm, I'm quite done. <laughs> Okay. Um, I did want to say, kind of in an Easter eggy vein, and I meant to say this before, when um, when Beaufort is singing Man in the Moon in yeah. Rivendell, he is standing on the same stone that Frodo lays the ring on during the Council of Elrond. In fact, that's where they're having dinner, <laughs> is in that same ring where they have the, the Council ring of Elrond. The council. But he's actually standing on the stone, the stone piece, you know, that Frodo lays the ring on during the Council That's of lovely. I didn't notice that. That's lovely. Yeah. That is, lovely. and they even mentioned it in the in the documentaries too. I mean, it was it was an on purpose thing. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. That's great. Plinth, no, plinth. There the, you go. The plinth, Robert's yes, album. on which plinth. on which is, yeah. Yes. No, that's um, 
That's your, so that's what that was used for. You know, they had that uh, not just to put the Ring of pow- uh, Power on. So now when I see the Fellowship Council. of the Ring, you know, I'm not going to be able to see the Council of Elrond without thinking food fight. Right, and imagining and imagining, <laughs> and imagining Bofer Bofer dancing on top of the on top of that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, and the other thing that I forgot to mention that I forgot to mention about the Rivendell deal is that is this is Keeley flirting with a she elf. Yes. Yeah, which opens up that reopens that whole thing of the Tauriel Keeley thing, which I think is going to be one sided. I think it's just going to be you know we we've set up we're now set up to see that Keeley likes to flirt with dwarves. Yeah, I mean with elves, with elves so he'll probably yeah. do the same thing with Tauriel. Yeah, no, I mean the the fact that right establishing him as you know some kind of. Uh, some kind of 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 you know Don Juan in, in his own eyes at least, right? Um, right. You know that that uh, that he would uh, you know conceive uh, you know such thoughts is uh, yeah no that does seem to be that yes, does seem yeah. to be a setup. And of course, Danny reminds us that we did get to see the um, young Bilbo, which meeting, was cool, uh, which was kind of cool. Yeah, meeting. We don't see. We don't actually see. Gandalf. I mean, he runs into Gandalf's robes, basically. Yeah. Um, and then his mom hugs Gandalf, but that was kind of cool. I mean, that was a little bit of backstory that was kind of fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it is, and it it, it also I mean, the 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 great effect that I thought that that had that putting that in had was really lending much more emotional weight to the scene mm-hmm. in Bilbo's drawing room after right. the, you know, when he recovers from his faint, the conversation that he and Gandalf has when, right. have when he's in his armchair and, and, um, uh, you know, and, and Gandalf is talking about, you know, the, the story of Bulrar took and stuff that, you know, that scene of, you know, what happened, you know, you've changed and not for the better. And, um, right. You know, showing Gandalf's long history, not just the fact that he has known, you know, Bilbo really all of his life or no, he's known of Bilbo all of his life, but that he knows his family and everything that Gandalf is in, you know, so when when Gandalf delivers that line, which was kept in the theatrical version, you know, I am Bilbo Baggins, you know, I am a Baggins of Baggin, and he says, but you're mm-hmm. also a Took. That's that's. um you know that that line has so much more weight and so much more, and you know, and his own Bilbo's own reaction um, to that, you know, where mm-hmm. where he seems self conscious, you know, he seems uh, not necessarily chagrined, but you know, th- there is this sense of almost like a, a family pressure on him, you know, that like he has, um, it, it begins to look like he Bilbo has deliberately tried to turn away from, you know, he's half Baggins and half Took, but he, he, he's trying to ignore the Took, you know, he doesn't, he, he's trying to distance himself from his Took heritage. Um, he looks almost guilty, doesn't he? I yes. mean, now, it, now having seen that scene now, his, yeah, I mean, now when I think of that scene that he has with Gandalf in his drawing room, I mean, he does kind of has a guilty look when Gandalf says that to him. Yes. Oh, and Christopher, you're right. I was also thinking that the wooden sword that Bilbo like is, is using yeah, looked like Sting. It was a really nice piece of foreshadowing. And also, again, um, uh, Christopher, that really deepened that moment when we see Bilbo drawing Sting for the first time in the Troll's Cave and looking at it. Um, the look that he gives to it um, really takes on a lot more depth um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when you think back to that and you see him because that scene, the scene of 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 juvenile Bilbo, 
um, in the extended edition um, really shows us, you know, that's Bilbo as Tookside. You know, that's Bilbo's right. Tookside coming out freely. We can, the fact that he's carrying a wooden sword is very significant in that moment um, because it shows us Bilbo as a young hobbit whose who's Tookside was fully indulged and it seemed almost in control, you know, left to himself. Bilbo was uh, loving the fireworks and, and imagining that he was a sword wielding, you know, warrior on adventures. Um, apparently um, is where Bilbo was as a kid. He's tried to leave all that behind. So the, the, um, the reemergence of his took side is not just, you know, is 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 made in that moment um not simply a part of his own nature which has been suppressed but which is now emerging that's what we see in the book um his took side coming out at times but there the way it's connected with his childhood you know it becomes that dynamic is not present in the book um the idea of bilbo going back to his childhood and recalling something um that he has suppressed since childhood which gives it i think a really attractive element because it it I, I am inclined to connect it, and I don't know if the filmmakers were thinking this or not, but I'm inclined to think of it in terms of the overall like childish reading of fairy tales and uh, and fantasy stuff, um, you know, oh. which which is sort of more associated with with the modern era than with Middle Earth. Yeah. Um, but that same kind of idea of when you were little and a kid, you indulged in these, you know, in fairy tales, and and you liked stories of adventure and you've tried to leave all that behind and become serious and stayed and, um, and more worried about, you know, doilies and your own respectability. Um, but, uh, but, you know, so that in, in letting his took side out in, 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 in sort of discovering his took side, he's not just sort of becoming a whole adult with both sides of his nature reconciled as they are at the end of the story. But he's recapturing that childhood joy and that childhood wonder that he's been trying to leave behind. I think it's a really fascinating element of the character to add in. Um, yeah. So, so I mean, I, so also, I felt in that way that childhood me. scene was had a had a really profound effect. It also, for me, was a personification of the way. Gandalf reminisces about Bilbo in the Quest of Erebor. Mm-hmm. You know, it, in the Quest of Erebor, we're hearing it from Gandalf's point of view, but in the movie, we're actually seeing what right. he remembers. You know, we're actually seeing Bilbo, which that's what it made me think of too. Was yes. was how he describes, you know, Bilbo as he remembered him as younger, um, which I thought was pretty cool. Yes, yes. Now the other piece also that you know is fairly minor, but was kind of interesting was when. Um, Bilbo goes shopping in Hobbiton after he's yes. encountered Gandalf on his yes. front stoop. Yes. And that was that was just fun. That was just a fun little scene. It was. And you can see him being um and you know, that was the kind of sequence remember way back, you know, halfway, a third of the way through season one of Riddles in the first, Dark. Yeah, the first year. Yeah. You know, uh, it's something Dave and I talked about in like March of two thousand twelve. Um how would Bilbo be characterized in his relationship with the rest of Hobbit society? Um, is he going to be mainstream? Is he going to be deviant? Um, you know, is he going to be seen as, as, as already countercultural and somebody who doesn't fit in, or is he going to be seen as a normal Hobbit? Um, 
and I think that was answered. You know, I think that we got a clear answer to that yeah. um, in that scene, which was, yeah, he's mainstream. Um, he's mainstream, he's yeah. he's clearly he's clearly upper class compared oh, to many. Thanks other. for reminding me. Many Christopher just reminded me of the other scene in Rivendell that was important. I completely forgot. Yeah. 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 No, we're going to, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely get back to that. Christopher, that is an important one. Yeah. Um, but you're right. You're right. I mean, that did answer that question. I mean, he was very much a baggage of bag end, wasn't he? Yes, and, exactly. But... He's kind of lordly, you know, he's kind of, uh, um, Again, I mean, he, he's he's the squire. Yes, very much. He's like not necessarily like the local squire in the sense of all the other people that he's meeting are his tenants. You know, who 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 live on his land. Not not quite that. You know, country English squire kind of sense. But right. yeah, but but definitely, you know, he he was he was of them. Nobody thought anything odd of him, um, even if he was even if. You know his right. his his dress and his um, appearance distinguished him somewhat as being wealthier than many of the other hobbits he was meeting in the marketplace, um, and more refined certainly. I mean, you think of him and his um, his manners and affectation when he's pulling when he's sitting himself down to his solitary dinner, which he never gets to eat. Uh, <laughs> you know, you think of like his all of his mannerisms. Um, about his food and his table there compared to the eating that we see other hobbits doing in the marketplace and stuff. I mean, it's clear he's uh, uh, from a different class. Right. But, but, but he fits in. Um, And we see him, you know, the thing with, you know, him thinking he sees Gandalf's hat, uh, you know, and it's, it's just a cushion on top of a, you know, a basket or something, but the way that he's trying to dodge Gandalf, but it's clear that he's, it's not just that he's wanting to dodge Gandalf. He doesn't want to be associated with Gandalf. Um, right. You know, that, that's always, that's one of the ways, that's how I Especially not in public. Exactly. Yes, absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. That he seems terrified, not just that Gandalf's going to return, but that Gandalf's going to come up and talk to him in front of everybody is, is, is how I took that. Um, yeah. 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 But, um, uh, but so anyway, so that was, that was interesting to see. And it certainly made much more dramatic um, the, the, you know, the, the the great line, which was in, you know, trailers for film one, the, you know, I'm going on an adventure as he's running down the path, you know, the, 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 the way in which Bilbo, when he emerges from Bag End, you know, the choice that he makes on mm-hmm. that morning is made much more dramatic and much more, uh, much more striking. That's true. You know, the scene that I already liked anyway, which is that completely nonverbal scene when he wakes yes. up and walks around and yes. initially looks happy that they're gone and then has this change really does become much more uh, clarified, I suppose, or yes. significant after having seen all those other scenes. Yeah. And the fact that he is, you know, and I liked that element, of course, in having him run pelting down the path after the dwarves. Um, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's sort of preserving that element from the book of him dashing out his front door um, and running after and, you know, running down to, 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 he's chasing after them instead of running to meet them. But, but still that idea of him, of him, uh, of him dashing down the lane, is taken from the book, but the element that they added to that um, was one of like public confession, basically, you know, one of, of, of Bilbo distancing himself from the, you know, he has made the choice not just to be a Baggins, but to be the Took also, not just to stay and be, uh, and, and be content uh, with his, 
uh, with his boring and mundane life, but to go and seek adventure. But we see him also declaring that choice in public. Right. Um, and, and the few people that see him being very confused and amazed to see him behaving like that. Exactly. Exactly. Um, which, of course, will doubtless explain why they think why they all think he's gone insane and gone off and fallen into a pool or died and right. uh, and are going to put up an auction for the for <laughs> of for the effects of poor Mr. Baggins, who went crazy and ran off into the blue and doubtless came to an untimely <laughs> end. Um, it's the that that narrative is easy to write from the uh, from the rest of the of the uh, I mean, there were so many witnesses to testify to the fact that he completely went. <laughs> off his head one morning and just dashed off into the blue um but uh i I actually look i look forward to how they do that yeah me too i i i'm i think the auction is going to be pretty awesome i i i I have i have high expectations uh and since he talks about lobelia you know he talks about her in the beginning there in the beginning of movie one i'm hoping that we get to see her and lotho in a little is lotho right Lotho is the is 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 the is the little one son yeah yeah so Yeah. yeah So we may see a little Otho Lobelia action with Bilbo at the end of the third movie, which would be cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. Um, <clears throat> yeah. I okay, agree. now back to the now back to the madness that runs in the family scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Um, and that was fascinating. Uh, um, not altogether. It's the way they staged it was fascinating. Um, where Bilbo. There's almost this level of like several different levels of of mm-hmm. eavesdropping. You know, there's there's Bilbo is standing there and he's overhearing Gandalf and Elrond talking as they're coming up the path, and then Bilbo realizes that Thorin is right behind him, right? So it's, mm-hmm. it, it was giving almost the sense of like Thorin spying on Bilbo, spying on Gandalf and 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 Elrond. But I mean, of course, the level of awkwardness just goes way up when, as soon as you know, we see that Thorin is there, also hearing, um, you know, Gandalf and Elrond talking about how Thorin is not particularly, sta- you know, is unlikely to be particularly stable. stable. Yeah. Um, but uh, this is an addition, though. I mean, this this madness that runs deep and you know yes. stra- runs deep in the family. I mean, I I don't know. I'm I'm still not sure how I really feel about that addition to the story well yeah me neither um unless see in the in the film in the first film when thor goes off the edge there at the beginning um the reasons why are not especially clear right um, and, you know, in particular, I was fascinated at the time and remain fascinated by the way in which the film seems at least by implication and in part by overt suggestion to reverse the relationship between dragon sickness and dragons. That is, instead mm-hmm. of having a horde which is has been brooded over by a dragon for many years... Um, be a horde that is more likely to inflict you with corrosive dragon sickness. Rather, they ha- they turn it so that a horde which is already being 
loved with a corrupt kind of love is more likely to attract a dragon to it. Um, yeah, that seems to be the implication of the voiceover yeah. that we get um, when uh, when 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 the dragon comes. Um, where is it? I. Uh, that really flies in the face of uh, of tradition, doesn't it? It does. It it reverses it almost completely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, here's the line from the film. A sickness had begun to grow within him that is within Thror. It was a sickness of the mind, and where sickness thrives, bad things will follow. And that's where we start getting the shots of the kites and Dale and Smaug about to come. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, again, it doesn't actually say that... Uh, you know, uh, Smaug has, you know, dragons have some kind of, you know, connection. Some, yeah. Some or kind attraction. of like, yeah. Or... Like spidey sense that says like, wait, I somewhere, yeah, somebody dwarf. is right. <laughs> somewhere. Somebody has a bunch of gold and is thinking corrupt thoughts about it. I, I it's, it's that direction. I'm getting warmer. Like I, I, you know, I'm not saying anything quite so directly as that, but the other thing that the other thing that I found interesting that Elrond says is that Thryon had it too, and we see at, there's no mention of that and None. no indication of that at all in the first movie. None. This is what I'm wondering. Um, this is why my, now, and one, one other explanation of Elrond's words there um, is that he's making a veiled reference to the Ring of Power. Ah, yes. Um, that the Ring of Power has a corruptive influence, and the Ring of Power has been handed down in that line. Um, so he might be um, just referring. Now, cause, you know, I, I could imagine, for instance, uh, Thorin obviously takes it simply as Elrond meaning that family is intrinsically tainted. Like they're just there's something genetically wrong with the line of Durin. Right. Um, because, and and we see this, you know, that that was set up at the beginning of the film when we see that scene where we see Thorin looking on at his grandfather as his grandfather is going crazy, and Thorin himself clearly uncomfortable with this as he sees the madness growing in his grandfather, um, culminating, of course, in that scene where he has to drag his grandfather away from the horde and from the Arkenstone as you know Smaug is doing his swimming thing you know his little <laughs> whirlwind thing in the in the treasure um after he arrives um so uh so in, in other words we, we see thorin's recognition of his father's you know mental illness and what seems to be his own anxiety and his own concern which right. seems to be reflected i mean when he's overhearing elrond saying this the expression on his face is not simply how dare that elf say such things about my father and 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 imply that about me Inst- i mean he he does look a little, you know offended he does look upset but he does not just look like he thinks elrond is lying and full of it and mean um he seems concerned. I mean, this seems to be, and especially the, 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 the exchanges of glances between him and Bilbo, you know, uh, which from Bilbo's perspective just seems like deeply awkward, <laughs> right. As, uh, um, as they're hearing this and, um, and, and Thorin, you know, I, I don't know that Thorin would necessarily dispute it, that he would necessarily disagree. Um, 
you know, and I, I thought it was interesting that they didn't do anything with the scene. In other words, Bilbo and Thorne didn't have any kind of conversation afterwards. Yes, you know, exactly. they just like, left it, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, I mean, I thought that was a really good move, but but yeah, yeah. Th- that was that was interesting. Because yeah, I mean, it's there. It is. I mean, it's out there. It's out there between the two of them, right? They both know about this, and I think that that's going to be something that is likely to come up later on um, when Thorne starts to lose it. Now, David reminded me, and I just looked up in the, in the you know, uh, in the write the, the script or whatever you want to call it, you know, what, what do we know that happened? And Balin, when he was telling the story of Azanolbazar, says, Thryon, Thorin's father, was driven mad by grief. He went missing, taken prisoner or killed. We did not know. We were leaderless, defeat and death were upon us. And that's all we know. That's the only reference that we actually got to whatever has become of Thryon. So... I, for some reason, I'd been thinking he'd been taken prisoner. Maybe that's because what Azog says later. Well, okay, but here's the thing: the timing of that. Um, I, my understanding of that, and I might be wrong, but my understanding of that—I mean, even when I saw it in the theater, my understanding of Balin's comment about that was that that was speculation on his part, mm-hmm. because he disappears in the middle of the battle. Like, right. They start when at the beginning of the battle, which seems to be only one day long at the beginning of the, ba- at the beginning <laughs> of the day, Thror is their leader. Then Thror is killed. Then Balin makes the comment about Thran being gone and, uh, and, and, and then being leaderless. And then Thorin steps up. So at the beginning of the day, Thror is their leader. At the end of the day, Thror, Thorin has stepped up and become their leader. Thran vanished apparently somewhere in between these things in the middle of the day. Um, he's not there to lead the charge back that Thorin ends up having to lead himself. Um, so he appears to disappear. He seems to disappear in the middle of the battle. And um, and so I interpreted Balin's comment about being driven mad by grief or something as mere like after the fact guessing on his part, what happened to Thran? We don't know what happened to Thran. His body wasn't found apparently. Um, So they, all they know is that he disappeared. Uh, They don't know that he was captured. So basically they're, 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 I mean, we don't, we don't, we, we, we didn't get any visuals of Thorin running mad off into the distance. Um, uh, So, you know, there's no evidence anybody saw him do that. He just seems to have vanished. Um, so my, so again, and also yeah. Azog's Azog's statement, which I still it cracks me up because Azog says this in Orkish. So how the heck Thorn? I don't know that Thorn even knows that his father could be still alive because he couldn't possibly understand what Azog said. But anyway, Azog says, "Do you smell at the scent of fear? I remember your father reeked of it, Thorn, son of Thryon." Yes. And and again, that doesn't. I I had been thinking that that meant that they had taken Thryon, but that doesn't necessarily mean, he's not actually necessarily saying that. No. It could have been in the battle. In the battle, yeah. Yes. Because of, presumably, I mean, Thror fought Azog and was killed by him. Right. Right. Thorin fought Azog and overcame him. Thran doesn't seem to have fought Azog, (laughs) which would have been the logical thing to happen. Um, uh, Yeah. And Thran also seems to have lost his eye prior to the battle of Azanulba. He lost it uh, when the dragon attacked Erebor, I no, believe. no, he's eyeless at the beginning. Oh, I thought he had both his eyes, and I thought he came at when Thorin was taking his father out of the mountain after the I dragon hit. That th- um, well, his eye was all bloody. I, it looked to me like he had one eye, um, right. like that he had a scar over one eye 
I will have to go back and look at that again. We'll but I thought there was something again. wonky about his eye already when he was introduced. Oh, okay. Um, you know, about Thor's line being secure because he had a son and grandson. Um, but, uh, I mean, maybe I was misconstruing it because I was looking for it. But, um, but anyway. Um, but again, I wonder... Now, now I, I agree, David uh, Trimbley here, uh, who's commenting on this, I, I believe that he's right to say that... Um, Elrond might be referring to that common idea that, you know, if if the if the if the current story, um, you know, in circulation about what happened to Thran is that he went mad with grief and ran off, uh, that um, that you know Balin seems to believe it, and therefore Elrond probably believes it too. So from where Elrond is sitting, both the father and the grandfather showed clear signs of mental instability in one direction or another, and therefore Thorin probably will too. Um, but uh but again i'm wondering i i i'm wondering if there might be a ring connection there um now b- but if so he wouldn't be worried about thorin cuz thorin doesn't have the ring right exactly cuz thorin doesn't have the ring yeah though maybe Unless, well the only other thing is because they don't know where the ring is it's possible thorin does have it and you know dwarves are very secretive and don't talk about that stuff yes oh and i want to go at christopher makes a comment here that i completely agree with that describing the look on thorin's face when he's overseeing when he's overhearing this conversation mm-hmm. and christopher characterizes it as uh, the aragorn look of the same weakness flows in my veins um yeah yeah i agree he seems conscious like he's mm-hmm. like he wants to be angry at elrond for saying these things but at the same time he can't deny it um but he does not seem to have quite the self-awareness that Aragorn has about that um, in the Fellowship of the Ring film. Um, but uh, but 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 some some something like that, some direction of that. Well, we should stop before too long because oh, we're speaking of starting ring, to move well, towards three ring, hours. But go ahead, yeah. I know the itty bitty scene. I think it follows right after this, doesn't it? Where Bilbo sees Narsil and then looks at the mural of Sauron and notices the ring on Sauron's hand. Yeah. Uh, the, ba- the Battle of Daggerland. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Which I don't know. I mean, it was cool, but it was also kind of a little obvious to me. I mean, I don't know. Well, it's interesting in that, you know. <laughs> Not that there's any reason. Okay, so Bilbo sees that Sauron had a ring on his finger, um, and then he finds this ring that makes him invisible and stuff. <laughs> um, it doesn't make any connection. Yeah, why would like, he? Why would he? Exactly. There yeah. doesn't seem to be any reason to think that because he saw a mural in which Sauron was wearing a ring, that he would think that the ring that he found is Sauron's ring. Um uh, so I, I can't imagine that they're the implications they're trying to to yeah, set up. Yeah, exactly. I think that's there. why this the scene I felt was a little bit forced because of that. Because why right. would you know? First of all, this huge mural of a battle. The one thing he's going to notice is there's a ring on Sauron's hand. Right. You know what I mean? It's a, a little forced. I thought. Yeah. I would. I, the ring is in that picture. The ring is. Yeah. It, it is a little bit. It is a little bit. We'll, we'll see. I mean, we'll see. Um, it is funny. Actually, what they may have been referring to, do you recall that they actually had to paint the ring in? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's very, I mean, the ring is very visually obvious in that. I mean, because it's a very dark, shadowy mural, but the ring right. is like bright, bright yellow. Bright yellow, um, yeah. Uh, so it really does stand out. I mean, if I were standing there looking at that mural, I'd, I couldn't help but notice the ring, I'm sure, because um, it does stand out that way. But, That's um, true. But, uh, 
But of course, it also the 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 reason that the other reason that I'm willing to let that slide is that I'll be is is sort of thinking towards the necromancer, um, because it establishes Bilbo standing there looking at the mural uh, of Sauron yeah. wielding oh, wearing the ring, sets up that the sort of the triad of Bilbo and the necromancer and the ring, right. um, that's going you know whether there's any direct interaction there or. Uh, or any implication of any thought of it. It's still, you know, there's Bilbo standing, looking at the necromancer wearing the ring. Whereas later on, we're going to get, you know, the necromancer while Bilbo is wearing the ring. And, you know, so I, you know, that, that <laughs> it's, you know, yeah. it's, yeah, uh, true. it's, it's, it, but, but, but it's not, it's not that I don't agree with you that that's a little forced because it is, but, but, yeah. Uh, but a bit predictable. Like I said, it's kind of tropey. I mean, yeah, it is. You know. But, you know, yeah. I don't know. I like that kind of thing. I'm, I'm, you know, that that kind of like let us establish the, you know, sort of this this the symbols and set up this like ironic parallel. Like you know, okay, maybe obvious, it may be forced, but I still like it. You know yeah, what it, what know. it does. Um, but yeah, no, it's okay. Yeah, I'm kind of of two minds myself. Yeah, yeah. The the avid moviegoer lapper up of stories that you know I don't that doesn't require any kind of logical connection loves it. Right. The other side of me is like, eh. <laughs> <laughs> well, the good news is we don't have a riddle tonight, so that's we don't, true. You know, we're not going to be spending the next hour on a riddle that's like right. we have normally done. Yeah, when we're done, we're actually done. So that's that's <laughs> that, that'll be fine. Um, yeah. Well, um, uh, I think we've covered every anything. Is I mean, everything. Does did the listeners? Is there a scene we've missed that sticks in your mind? Yeah. Or? Is there anything else you guys want? Uh, yeah, wanted us to to talk about that we haven't mentioned i think I'm, I'm going through in my own head and i i don't i mean we even covered some of the minor things you know the food yeah. fight i suppose you know big the on food, food fight. fight yeah yeah the the we even made as much reference as i want to to the naked dwarves <laughs> in the fountain um yeah <laughs> there is a um the, having seen the little documentaries after and I I now cannot watch that scene of Lindir and uh Elrond talking, you know, as they approach they're speaking in Elvish as they approach and before they see the uh, the dwarves. Yes. Um the guy the actor that plays Lindir ha- talks about how long it took him to do that scene because he couldn't remember the lines. They literally handed him like the Elvish that right right before they did the scene. Oh. And then they ended up like doing retakes because he couldn't remember the Elvish. <laughs> yeah. So now that I know that, every time I see that scene, I think of that. I mean, they'd be like walking down, and he'd start to talk, you know, and then he'd he'd muff the line, and and uh, Hugo Weaver would just like do a one eighty without even changing expression and just walk back again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I see. Uh, Daniel was talking about the, uh, the 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 smells like elves reference. Um, I I'm not remembering that with enough confidence to make sure I can quote it exactly. I, I remember Daniel what you're referring to. There is a moment when they're approaching Rivendell that Bilbo says something that was reminding me of that too, but I don't I don't remember it well enough. Yeah, I'm the same as you are. I I recall it, but not with good. Oh, let's see. Let me go over to the script and see if I can find it. How's that sound? Yeah, yeah. 
Um, also, the Goblin King, when when uh, when Nori's stash falls out on the ground and he picks up the candelabra and goes, Second Age! Oh, Second Age, Elvis, I love that. Can't sell it or right. whatever. Can't give it away. Can't give it away. <laughs> yeah. Second Age, yeah, I really like that. It's merely 3,000 years old. Oh, and, and you're right. I think it's Christopher, is it Christopher that mentions the scene with... Um, Elrond and Bilbo. I mean, we had seen that before, the scene of them yeah. talking. Yeah, yeah, we didn't talk about that much because I, yeah, we, we'd already yeah. watched that. And, and, and I uh, think you had mentioned it. the facial, just the oh, nonverbal yeah. facial play between those two is incredible. Yeah, no, absolutely. Both of them, Hugo Weaving and, and, uh, uh, and, um, um, Martin Freeman are, are you did, did such a great job in that scene. I mean, I uh, it's fantastic. Yeah, Th- Daniel, thanks for reminding me. It's uh, Bilbo says it feels like magic. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, I was thinking of the smells like elves. They, they don't come anywhere close to actually saying mm, it smells like elves. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I, I did I did really like that, Daniel, and it, it picked up on. Uh, you remember? We I, I remember saying this at some point in a riddles in the dark episode, when we were discussing the first film after it came out, um, that I really liked the way that we got Bilbo's first view of Rivendell, um, and how he's the one to name it, you know, when Mm -hmm. they're looking down into the Valley and you get that sense of, um, you know, of, of, of not only just wonder on his part, but even of desire, like he's heard of this place and he, you know, it's, it's like, you know, probably he heard stories that involved Rivendell back during, you know, his misspent Tookish youth, um, that he's, uh, that he's tried to distance himself from during his, uh, adult life. Um, but, um, but you know we have that sense of the sort of the recovery of wonder you know now that he now that he's actually seeing it before him uh so daniel i really did like that addition back in the extended edition of of him saying you know it feels like magic it feels like magic yeah. yeah yeah that was that was cool i mean i still you know needless to say i would have been i would have been 500 times more pleased had he actually said it smells like elves. Um, oh, actually, I know, but it's so cool. You know what would have been really funny is if they'd given that line to one of the dwarves. Um, that I could totally imagine. You know, Dwalin just being like, smells like elves. You know, that would have been that would have been funny. I, I, I would have laughed. Had that. That, would have been, <laughs> that would have been the kind of Easter egg that, uh, that I would have um, uh, that I would have appreciated. But, um, um, yeah, yeah, good. Well, I, I think we certainly talked about most of the big picture stuff. Um, yeah. So, I'm, uh, I'm kind of looking to see if there's just anything else here that we, I think we've pretty much covered most of the additional dialogue pieces. Yeah. Um, there's a, there's some piece between, oh yeah, there we go. Maiden Rivendell, ah, second age, couldn't give it away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's funny right. that was Now we the, handled all of them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I remember from those, you know, back before the first movie came out, when through like the iPad app that they released, we got those character vignette descriptions of all mm-hmm. 13 dwarves and stuff. I remember that one. I'd forgotten that it was Nori, but I remembered that one of them was supposed to be, a, you know, a, a thief. thief. You know, a, a scoundrel and a yeah, thief. Yeah. a scoundrel and a thief. Um, and there was... And I remembered that that was in one of their descriptions, 
but there was, you know, I, but, and I remembered that finding it a little bit strange that that did not come up at any point, uh, in the entire film after they, yeah, made, after right. they released that. But then of course, in the extended edition, it came up that we did have one person who was, who was, uh, you know, stealing the flatware and the, and the, uh, and the silverware. Um, yeah. Charity asks the excellent question. Why do they need a burglar if they have Nori? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They already have a burglar. Well, cause he smells like dwarf, right? Yeah, exactly. He smells like dwarf. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yep. Yep. Um, well, do you think we've, I think, I think we're good. Sucked the life out of us. Yeah. I told, I told people that there was no chance we would go until midnight. So we should start, probably stop before 11 to, uh, to, to show how emphatically confident I could be in my prediction that we would not, uh, uh, Oh, well, we've still got a whole nother hour to midnight. Oh yeah. Yeah. No problem. Exactly. Um, uh, so good. Well, thanks everybody for joining us. Um, as I said, next week we're going to do. Um, two next weeks. week we're going to do two. Weeks-ish. Two. Oh yeah, no, next, next week. Two weeks ish. Um, probably, I'm guessing, probably earlier in the week that the film is released, we'll do our review episode. Yeah. Well, for one one of the reasons for that is is that Linda, uh, Linda, Laura, and I need to catch up. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, you're right. It, well, that's what it would be anyway, is, is early in the week. Yeah, so exactly. like yeah. the 10th or 11th. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking the odds are it will be Tuesday the uh, Tuesday tenth. the 10th. Yeah, yeah. Um, that we'll do our final episode. And we, uh, we'll, do, we'll do a review of, um, uh, of, of the riddles uh, and, you know, anything else that comes out between now and then. Um, and we need you and Dave to answer the conundrum that you haven't answered yet. Exactly, exactly. Um, so yeah, very good. So we will look forward to that and, and the film coming out soon. We are, we are barely two. No, we're not. Yeah. We're what? Three weeks away from, from the film release. Tickets have already gone on sale actually for the, you know, pre, pre purchase. Yeah. 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 Oh my gosh. You're right. It's like three weeks away. Pretty wild. Almost exactly. Or which, exactly three weeks away. Exactly actually. three weeks away. Which reminds me, that means we are also three weeks away from Mythmoot, which, which <laughs> we should also mention. Uh, those of you who haven't gotten the chance, we're going to be getting together. Uh, and if you, w- you know, if you would like to come and watch The Desolation of Smaug with us uh, in a private showing and uh, to take part in our conference, which is not just focused on the Hobbit film. It's going to be much more broadly focused on on, on uh, Tolkien and other science fiction and fantasy authors as well. There will be papers, there are special guests, and um, you know, there's going to be a lot of fun and uh, both uh, both good scholarship and good times for everybody. Um, Mythmood, it's in Baltimore on the weekend of the 13th through the 15th. If you go to the mythguard.org website, you can find uh, on the events page um uh more information about Mythmoot and Yeah, the register. agenda is now up. The cool. paper schedule is now up. I've been in dialogue, actually Corey and I both have been in dialogue with our special guests who are Ted Naismith, Jeff Murray, and John D. Bartolo. So we have art and music. They're really excited. They're gonna be bringing pieces of their own to, you know, to sell yeah, prints and I guess original work. And we're gonna have music. They're they're looking forward to doing some music. So it's gonna be really, really fun. Oh, and and, a, and Dave's putting together a pub quiz for Saturday night. So yes, yeah, that should be a, quite an experience. That alone is worth the price of admission. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's definitely going to be fun. No, the, the sort of the theme of 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 Myth Mood in general uh, this year is adaptation. As you know, we're, you know, of course, on the occasion of the second Hobbit film, we're thinking a lot about adaptation. We'll be talking, of course, you know, we'll have some first reaction and second reaction, uh, you know, discussion panels about the second film right after we've seen it. Um, but um, but also we're going to be, you know, in having Ted and Jeff and John coming, all three of them are artists who do work on adaptation and illustration. Both Jeff and Ted uh, are, are, you know, as you may know, very famous, uh, very famous painters who, who do uh, Tolkien illustrations. And uh, and John DiBartolo is a songwriter who who does uh, a lot of Tolkien um, musical work, adapting uh, in some instrumental uh, and uh, some uh, uh, verbal music um, uh, many of Tolkien's songs and 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 sort of um, really wonderful yeah, stuff. characters yeah, and passages really from Tolkien's work is re- really really great stuff. So one of the things we're going to be doing, we're going to have a big panel presentation. Um, I'm going to be talking, a big panel discussion. I'm going to be having a discussion with them about, about adaptation. We're going to, we're going to talk about, um, you know, what they, you know, what they do, how they deal with this, with this text, how, how their own reading and interpretation of Tolkien's work, um, uh, you know, sort of works within their own, you know, creative interpretation and their own, their own, their own creative inspiration, uh, you know, sort of the combination of interpretation and, and inspiration that goes into, uh, into a work of, of, of adaptation. Um, and then we're going to follow that panel up with, um, a little presentation that I'm going to do where I'm going to take one of each of their works of art. That is Ted Naismith and Jeff Murray's and John DiBartolo. Take one of John's songs and one each of Jeff and, uh, and Ted's paintings. Um, and I'm going to basically do some analysis of each one of them. We're going to, we're going to look at them and compare them with the texts, uh, and really look at the work of adaptation that they do in their own work. I think it's really fun, um, to do those things and look at what, uh, to see what the artists and, uh, and, and, and the songwriter, uh, is doing in those things. So it should be a lot of fun. Um, but, yeah, uh, fun. uh, anyway, so, so yeah, so these are the things that will be happening at Mythmoot, uh, this year. So, uh, hope that, uh, you know, that many of you, I know that some of you are, are planning to come and I look forward to that. I know that some of you wish you could come, but we'll have a harder time. Uh, I think I'm, I'm thinking here in particular of, uh, Robert in Australia. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but I, you know, I hope that, uh, many of you who, you know, if you have not signed up yet, I hope you will look into it. Uh, consider coming to join us. It was a wonderful time last year, and I, uh, I believe it's going to be awesome again this year. But okay, now I will, I will really let you go. So, <laughs> thanks everybody for joining us for another long episode of Riddles in the Dark. Uh, one more to go, so we will see you in a couple weeks, and then the film. So, thanks for listening, and Godspeed. <laughs>